Need a quick place to pick up some of your favorite keto foods like Primal Kitchen Mayo, Coconut Milk, Almond Butter, MCT Oil, and Sea Salt at the best prices possible? Then head on over to thrivemarket.com slash keto to fill your low-carb, high-fat needs all in one place. Thrive Market sells the very best ketogenic-friendly brands at wholesale prices so you're not spending your whole paycheck to get what you really want. Because they work directly with their members and cut out the middlemen, they can pass on the very best savings to you. I love that they donate a complimentary membership to a low-income family, veteran, or teacher for each new member who joins the Thrive Market family. I've hand-selected 25 of my favorite low-carb, high-fat products that I think you're going to love, too. For you, my listeners, you'll get 25% off your first purchase, plus free shipping, plus a free 30-day trial of Thrive Market to see for yourself what an amazing way to shop keto this is. Don't forget, the prices are already 25 to 50% below retail, so you get these things as an added value. So go to thrivemarket.com slash keto to take advantage of this exclusive offer for fans of my podcast, Thrive Market. From the publisher who brought you best-selling books by Maria Emmerich, Leanne Vogel, and Jimmy Moore, comes the latest in the line of ketogenic books that are sure to rock the health community. It's called The Ketogenic Bible by Dr. Jacob Wilson and Ryan Lowry. It's the authoritative guide to ketosis, and it's now available for purchase at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. The Ketogenic Bible. Coming up in episode 1302, an LLVLC classic with Dr. Peter Atia. and educating and making the world a more informed and healthier place. You're listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. You've helped change so many lives and give us all the courage to take on the rest of the world. This is the longest running health podcast on the air today. You've done so much to spread the word about how diet matters. Over 1,000 episodes strong and counting. The amount of lives that you've changed at this point is incalculable. And now, here's our host and international best selling author you're like the ll cool j of podcasting jimmy moore hey guys it's jimmy moore back here on the living la vida low carb show and today we have yet another llvlc classic episode deep within our archives we have so many great interviews that are no longer on itunes because itunes only airs the last 300 episodes and so we're now over 13 1,500 episodes, which means there's a whole lot of goodies that are being hidden from you if you're only listening on iTunes. Now, by the way, you can always listen at the 
Tom, every single episode that has ever aired is all still there under the archives link, as well as the Ask the Low Carb Experts podcast, which has been retired for a few years. We also house those archives there as well. And today's special LLVLC classic guest is Dr. Peter Atia, and we actually pulled audio from both Live and La Vida Low Carb Show as well as Ask the Low Carb Experts. So you're going to get a lot of insights into this man that kind of burst on the scene out of nowhere. He had a chance meeting with Gary Taubes, was kind of stalking the guy for a little while before they were able to meet up. And of course, after these interviews that I did many years ago now, Gary and Pete actually started NUSI, Nutrition Science Initiative, which is trying to get a lot of low-carb diet studies out there into the mainstream. So check out this LLVLC classic episode with Dr. Peter Atia. Welcome back to the Live and La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. And today I'm pleased to welcome to the podcast an MD by the name of Dr. Peter Atia. He has a website called The War on Insulin and the Defense of Fat. Visit it at waroninsulin.com. And man, he has just come out of nowhere, really saying a lot of the same things that you've heard on this podcast for many years now. Uh, and he's just now understanding the science himself uh, that kind of goes against a lot of what he learned uh, as he was going through his medical training. So, uh, Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Jimmy. Well, tell us a little more of your own personal journey of how you came to this understanding uh, about low-carb nutrition. Sure. Um, you know, the acute phase of the journey really began about two years ago, but I think to put it in context, I probably need to go back in time, uh, you know, maybe 15 to 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, always kind of an athlete my whole life, always interested in health and nutrition, uh, and always consuming what I refer to as sort of the iconic athlete's diet, uh, which was, you know, quite high in what I thought were, you know, complex and, uh, you know, quote unquote, good carbs, uh, very low in saturated fat. Uh, quite high in protein, et cetera. And, uh, you know, I remember even going to medical school thinking that uh, this was going to be really enjoyable because now I would actually get to learn all of the science behind what I was doing. <laughs> uh, and so I had a great time in medical school and uh, uh, in residency as well. I, I did my residency in general surgery um, and did a fellowship in surgical oncology. Um, but about 10 years ago, something just stopped working. Now, we could sit here and debate for hours what changes in a person's metabolism as they age, but nevertheless, the formula stopped working, which is to say I just slowly started to put on the weight, even though I was exercising, you know, probably an average of three hours a day and eating these quote-unquote good foods. And, you know, my frustration hit its peak in about the summer to fall of 2009, and I, I've said the story a couple of times before, but basically... My wife, um, who's uh, one of the genetically lucky ones, who's <laughs> perpetually thin despite eating anything she wants, sort of said to me, you know, Peter, you, you ought to try to be a little bit less not thin. Mm. Um, and at that time, at a height of about 5'10", I was about 200 pounds. Uh, body composition showed 25% fat. So, you know, call it I'm carrying around 50 pounds of fat. Now, by by U.S. standards, that, that put me at a BMI of between 29 and 30. So I was you know, overweight, flirting with obesity. But what I think um, was the real motivation and incentive for me to fix this problem was I already felt like I was doing everything that I could maximally do. I couldn't, there weren't more hours in the day that I could exercise. 
Um, I guess I could have attempted calorie restriction, but I knew myself well enough to know that being starving wouldn't work for long. So I basically decided I needed to figure out what was going on. And that's what really kicked off my journey a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at your website now, waroninsulin.com, and in your bio section, <laughs> I love it, Peter. You've got a, a, a photo of yourself wearing this T-shirt, and I've absolutely got to get one of these T-shirts. It says, praise the Lord. <laughs> I love that. That was given to me. Uh, that was given to me when I gave a talk up in the Bay Area, and I I have received so many questions from people, both through the blog and Facebook, as to where I got it. Yeah. Um, and I can now say that you can get these at the farmers markets um, up in the up in the Bay Area, and the company that sells them is pretty soon going to be selling them online. So so shortly you'll be able to get these online. <laughs> but as it stands now, you can only buy this in San Francisco. Who who knew you were going to be a model for? Uh, a, a soon-to-be best-selling T-shirt, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was very apropos. Now, you had a, a, a meeting with somebody that we know very well in this community, Gary Tobbs, um, who kind of helped influence you and kind of nudge you in the right direction. Uh, tell us about how you met Gary and how he has influenced you. Oh, yeah, that, that's definitely an interesting story. So uh, I guess maybe picking up where I left off a second ago, in the fall of '09, I decided that I was going to try to, you know, do an experiment, if you will, a self-experiment. Uh, and I'm always kind of a data-hungry guy. And I read a, about how carbohydrate restriction could work. Uh, to be completely honest, I'm ashamed to say that in all of my time in clinical medicine, I had been entirely dismissive of this approach. Um, in fact, I viewed it as a silly fad. Um, and I remember sort of, you know, thinking to myself, well, sure, you can lose weight, but you're just going to die of a heart attack. So what's the point? You know, mm -hmm. I, I took that very cavalier, superficial view. Right. But now I decided, you know what, I'm going to revisit this. Um, and my biggest concern actually at that point in time, Jimmy, was less even about chronic disease risk um, but what I was primarily concerned with at the moment was athletic performance. Yeah. I had read so much um, that had influenced my thinking that said you simply couldn't do kind of high-level athletic intense activity without carbohydrates in your system. And I, you know, I could quote all the studies about how your ratios of free testosterone to cortisol would plummet and all sorts of these things. So I, I was very cognizant of that. But nevertheless, what I was doing wasn't working, so we had to change it. So the first thing I did was just cut out sugar. And when I say sugar, I mean sucrose and high fructose corn syrup. And I said, that's the only change I'm going to make. I'm going to just reduce those dramatically. It's almost impossible, as you probably know, and anyone listening knows, to eliminate those to zero. Right. Because they are so ubiquitous in everything we eat. Um, in fact, it turned out there were only two brands of bread I could even eat that mm. didn't contain high fructose corn syrup. Uh, and I had to pay like what seemed like 50 bucks a loaf at the time to get them <laughs> the sugar-free bread. Probably. But um, to make a long story short, I actually went through this gradual period of every three to four months, I would tweak my eating habits further. Yeah. In other words, I'd become slightly more restrictive in what I ate. So at first it was, let's just eliminate sucrose and high fructose corn syrup. Then it became, well, let's actually cut down on uh, starches and move to a more high GI index carb. And this whole thing wound its way down until about a year ago when I'd kind of pulled every lever you can pull except for one, which was full-on nutritional ketosis. At the time, I read Why We Get Fat, which I devoured on a plane ride to Tokyo, um, reread it on the way back, 
I was, I was just so blown away by it, actually. On the way back to San Francisco, where I was flying in time, I reread the book and wrote about a 20-page or 10-page summary of the book because I felt like I needed to share it with all of my friends and family, and I knew that they may not want to read the whole book. So I get back uh, to San Diego. I send this 10-page thing out to my friends and family, and I say, guys, if you don't want to read the book, fine, but please read this summary. This book has challenged everything I thought I knew because you have to remember something, Jimmy. Up until that point, I had observed something empirically, which was I had slowly shed those pounds. Somehow my cholesterol numbers had been improving dramatically, didn't seem to be hurting my athletic performance, but I actually had no idea why. And I didn't, I was still a little bit in the dark as to what was really going on. Right. And at the time, by the way, I still really felt that saturated fat was very harmful. So I was still avoiding saturated fat like the plague. After I read Why We Get Fat, of course, my curiosity had peaked and I needed to read Good Calories, Bad Calories, <laughs> which, you know, by the way, um, you know, even though I have a, a medical background and a, and a very scientific background, I still needed to pull out my biochemistry textbook yeah. to read Good Calories, Bad Calories. Um, I had to read it twice. I had four different colors of highlighters, four different colors of sticky tabs, two different um, types of page folding techniques I used. I mean, I really, you know, I really geeked out on this. And at that point, um, which now is probably about February of last year, I realized I probably need to interact. I, I need to meet this guy, Gary. And I kind of sat on that for a while. And then I still remember the day because it was April 13th of last year when I was um, in Dubai for business. And the article came out in the uh, New York Times. Right. Um, or it might have been the New York Times Magazine, but it was the article about uh, sugar, basically about Lustig's lecture. And right. it was Gary's sugar article. Right. Well, I emailed Gary right away and I said, look, Gary, you probably get 174 of these emails a day, but just want you to know I've, I've read your books, I've enjoyed them, and I'd love to pick your brain at some point because I've got a bunch of questions. He emailed me back right away and said, well, next time you're in Berkeley, come and let me know. So what I did was I basically hopped the next flight out of there, went to Berkeley and sat down with him. And as he alluded to in his blog post the other day, I think I showed up with about 20 pages of questions that I'd accumulated over the past two years. Right. And... We sat in a coffee shop and got through probably five of the pages. And I think at that point he was exhausted. And he said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm a little exhausted right now. Um, and I don't know what else to do. I feel like I've done everything that I can do um, as a writer. I've tried to investigate this. I've tried to write about this. And, I, and, and you know, he, I'm sure he acknowledged that he, you know, he felt he'd done great work. But he said, I'm not, I don't know what the next step is. And he said, if you're willing to help... I have an idea for what we could do. And that was really the beginning of, of kind of our friendship and, uh, and, and more importantly, I think, this, this partnership around this idea that we have to create a nonprofit organization that funds the type of science that's necessary to answer the questions that I think are missing in health policy today. Yeah. So you're kind of in the formation stages of that as we speak, as of the recording of this. Uh, can you tell us kind of the, the crux of what you're trying to do with this new organization? It's going to be a 501c3, right? That, that's correct, Jimmy. It's going to be a 501c3. The paperwork's already been filed, so um, we are waiting for you know all that stuff to get back to us from Sacramento. And we, we hope to be up and running um, by late April to early May. Mm -hmm. uh, the organization is called the Nutrition Science Initiative, or NUSI for short, mm -hmm. and it really is an organization that's aimed at bringing together people who are both skeptics and supporters of the alternative hypothesis, and I'll 
in a moment explain what I mean by the alternative hypothesis. But it's it's basically the only thing that I, I would say that all folks will have in common who would be involved in this is all folks would have the following thing in common, which is they would believe that the current dietary recommendations are not grounded in level one evidence. And so, you know, obviously people like me and Gary have a point of view on what what is the correct science where we have a hypothesis on that. And there are other people who will have a slightly different hypothesis on that. But if you agree that what the AMA, ADA, USDA, uh, AHA, et cetera, tell us in terms of what to eat, what, what constitutes the ideal diet, if you believe that that's not actually grounded in rigorous science, then, then I think you'll have a shared voice in NUSI. And we put together um, a scientific advisory board, an executive advisory board. Um, as soon as we get our 501c3 status, we're going to, of course, begin fundraising so that we can support the research, education, and advocacy goals of the organization. So are there any names on the advisory boards that, that we would probably be familiar with, or is that confidential at this point? Um, no, I, I, I guess it's not confidential. I mean, I'm, I'm more than happy to sort of talk a little bit about who those folks are. Um, and, and this is, you know, a board that's really probably going to grow over time. But the Scientific Advisory Board at this point in time has uh, has four folks who are really, really impressive. David Harlan, who is the Chief and Co-Director of Diabetes Research um, at the University of Massachusetts, and he's the former head of NIDDK. Um, Kevin Schulman from Duke. Um, and Kevin, many of you will probably know Kevin through his work, obviously, with other colleagues at Duke, Will Yancey, um, and um, Westman. some other folks there. Yeah, sorry, thanks, Eric Westman. Uh, and, and so and so, so Kevin has um, really done a lot of amazing work in this field, but also in particular has a very clear idea of what types of um, effectiveness studies. So transitioning from the short-term efficacy studies to the long-term effectiveness studies would be necessary to ask uh, or rather answer the questions that I think we've got about nutrition. Uh, the other two folks um, are Alan Snyderman uh, from McGill. And Alan Snyderman, um, of course, some folks may recognize as, as one of the, the guys that had a really big hand in demonstrating the role of apoprotein B specifically um, as a better surrogate uh, to approximate uh, LDL particle number, which, of course, is a much better way to estimate uh, coronary or cardiovascular disease uh, right. and LDL cholesterol. And then finally, Mitch Lazar at the uh, University of Pennsylvania. Awesome. Uh, so yeah, we're, you know, we're really encouraged by the fact that, and, you know, it's important for me to point out that the, the four members that make up our scientific advisory board to date, and again, I, this, is a, this is a board we, we see growing over time, these are not people that necessarily agree with everything that Gary and I believe, and of course Gary and I even you know, debate on, on nuanced issues of it. The point is they're healthy skeptics and they're good scientists, and that's really what we're interested in, is people who know how to ask the right questions and know how to design experiments to answer those questions. And, you know, one way or the other, we've got to find out what's right. Okay, now you have me intrigued. What do you not agree with Gary Taubes on? Uh, is it the exercise part? <laughs> oh, oh, boy. Well, no, I, mean, I'll tell you, I, I think maybe disagree is a, a strong word. I think, you know, <laughs> Gary and I have nuanced difference views on the importance, for example, of uh, omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids. So yeah. I personally probably place a higher emphasis on overall health um, around the optimization of alpha-linoleic acid and linoleic acid. And so it, it's, if you think of it through the lens of, you know, I wrote a post about this a couple of weeks ago where I tried to explain the difference between a first-order term and a second-order term and a third-order term, et cetera. It was a post I wrote on the irisin hormone that had been recently published um, 
uh, uh, exercise. In nature. That's right. And then the New York, New York Times wrote a very interesting piece about it. And and so I think what I would say is I think Gary and I both agree on the same terms in the equation. We probably you know will debate back and forth in in good faith what the order of importance is are. And so and so I think you know. I personally believe and in myself have found that I, I do probably reduce inflammation more in my, my own body when I've got those, when I've got that, that ratio of N3 to N6 closer to one to one than if it was say 30 to one, which is where probably the average American walks around at. Right. And we have the paleo community to really thank for kind of moving us in that direction of paying attention to vegetable oil consumption being an issue with their high omega-6s. Um, and, and food quality, which is kind of lacking in the low-carb world. Yes, a lot of us low-carbers eat the highest quality foods that we can find, but Dr. Atkins didn't really put a lot of emphasis on that in his books, um, and neither does Gary really in, in his books. Uh, but the paleo community puts a, a high priority on food quality. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I... Just on a personal level, the folks that have been most influential for me to understand that have been um, Steve Finney, Jeff Folick, and Doug Bebus. Yep. Um, and I'm sure you've spoken a lot with those three guys, the oh, yeah. real heavyweights in this field. And you know, I've just had the privilege to be able to sit down with these guys for hours and hours and hours on end and go over every single step in the conversion of linoleic acid and linoleic acid to EPA, DHA, um, and, and, uh, arachidonic acid and truly understand the nuances of, well, what happens if we get a little bit too much substrate going through this part of Delta 60 saturase and what happens if this happens? And then what are the anti-anabolic effects if you have too much of this versus that? And so, uh, I, I feel really blessed that, you know, I, I've found a lot of people who are willing to effectively re-educate me because, you know, tragically I went to sort of, you know, the best medical schools and residencies in the country. And yet, um, this sort of thing just wasn't emphasized. Um, yeah. I feel like I'd remember if it was. So I, it's always possible <laughs> it was taught and I was just asleep those days. But I, but I really think it wasn't emphasized. You slept in that morning a class or something. <laughs> exactly. I, I, maybe I missed that entire semester. Who knows? Yeah, Steve Finney, you were mentioning the uh, endurance with, with exercise earlier. He's done a ton of research on that very subject and uh, shows uh, that you can actually become keto-adapted and do just fine with exercise. Um, it's kind of that, that myth that pervades out there that you have to have carbohydrates in order to exercise, and yet that's not what Steve Finney found. No, and so, uh, you know, it's interesting you bring that up. That's exactly what I posted on this week. So my post from a couple of days ago really addressed that issue, and I did it in kind of a tongue-in-cheek way, sort of uh, hopefully not poking too much fun at Dr. Oz, but more using, I think, a comment he'd made as an example uh, to, to sort of build the case that, you know, you, you could do that. So when I um, was in the sort of final stage of what I would just call my self-experiment, which was last May, um, I wanted to embark on a 12-week experiment of complete nutritional ketosis. I was obviously very hesitant to do this going into the summer. You know, for me, um, you know, the summer was important, um, had some really big goals athletically, and was a little concerned that I could blow an entire summer or a season, if you will, by screwing around with this. So, and Gary actually introduced me to Steve way back when, and so um, Steve immediately sent me his paper from, I think it was 1983. This is a paper he did when he was 
doing his uh, PhD and then postdoc at MIT in the early 80s. Yep. And it was a study that really resonated with me because he did it with a bunch of effectively pro cyclists. Right. And since the summer season for me focused on cycling, I thought, well, gosh, it doesn't get better than this, where the guy actually does the study on the type of athlete that I'm looking at. And it was after I read Steve's paper that I realized, okay, this what I'm doing is not crazy. Uh, I might struggle with it, but but let's give it a try. And so, you know, I embarked on that 12-week experiment. Um, I'm actually going to write quite a bit about it because in the words of Steve and Jeff, they've never encountered somebody who was more difficult to transition into ketosis than me. In other words, <laughs> the pain and struggle that I went through, yeah. uh, Jimmy was probably worse than anyone they'd ever worked with. And I think between the two of them, they've had probably at least 3,000 people that they have worked with um, in a ketotic phase. So I think right. they have a you know, great breadth of experience, and yet they still thought I was about the, the toughest nut to crack. So uh, despite all my struggling, when the 12 weeks finally ended, which was you know the end of the summer, I, I just couldn't go back. It was sort of like, yeah, I've had to make a few sacrifices to get here. Yep, there's a few foods that I enjoy that I don't eat as much or certainly eat in the quantities I once did. But the benefits of this state... Um, in particular for me, just the metabolic transitions that have occurred, the what I perceive and, and documented in myself, the increased ability to oxidize fat and the ability to now have my brain not just be an obligate uh, dependent source of, uh, require an obligate dependence on glucose, but rather be able to utilize beta-hydroxybutyrate. You know, these benefits for me have been enormous. And it's a personal choice. I I, I try to make sure I don't come across as a as a guy who's saying everybody needs to be ketotic or everybody even needs to be you know eating one way or the other. I think these are very individual decisions. But so let's talk about some of the struggles that you did have getting into that state because a lot of people deal with that. Uh, uh, some people are in ketosis almost immediately, <laughs> and then there's yeah. others that do take several weeks. I, I remember Dr. Finney talking about that study that you were referencing in early 80s, that uh, they actually uh, were ready to publish results, and they decided to just do one more week, and that's when they discovered these benefits to the cyclists um, that came from that keto adaptation period that was longer. I believe it was just a two-week study initially, but they did one extra week just just for whatever reason, and fortuitously, they discovered, hey, they became adapted to having fats. Uh, what were some of the problems that you experienced? Well, uh, I'm glad you brought up that point, Jimmy, because it actually reminds me to make two distinctions here. There are what I would just call the sort of catastrophic mistakes I was making, and then there's the longer-term period of adaptation. So let me address the first one, because that's really where some people get hung up. And as you pointed out, there are some people who just float through this with no hang-up. So uh, obviously, just you know, for any of the listeners on board who may not be exactly familiar with the semantics, when we talk about nutritional ketosis, we are speaking about something that is profoundly distinct from diabetic ketoacidosis. And I, it's always, I always think it's important to make this point, because right. I remember thinking, and again, I'm so ashamed to admit this, but I remember being so, so much of a mental midget that I was dismissive of this idea of ketosis as being quote-unquote dangerous simply by name association to diabetic ketoacidosis, which, let's be fair, is categorically dangerous. So we're talking about two, two, two separate things here. This is a state that occurs when your body effectively transitions from solely relying on glucose, particular, particularly for the brain, to uh, breaking down primarily fat 
to generate one of these three ketone bodies, acetone, acetoacetone, or beta-hydroxybutyrate. And if anybody wants to, you know, uh, be totally technical, beta-hydroxybutyrate is technically not a ketone body, but it gets lumped into the three with the others, and that's mm-hmm. for a reason that probably no one's interested in. Nevertheless, <laughs> um, to get there empirically, it's observed you have to be in a state of carbohydrate restriction that generally, as a rule of thumb, requires you consume no more than about 40 to 50 grams of carbohydrate per day. Now, how do you document this? So taking a step back from all this, Jimmy, you know, I wanted to do this as rigorously as possible, which meant I went out and bought, you know, one of the Abbott point-of-care devices that measures both glucose and beta-hydroxybutyrate in whole blood, didn't want to use the urine sticks. Um, I wanted to get really accurate um, quantitative rather than qualitative information. And so um, we would define nutritional keto adaptation um, or nutritional ketosis or keto adaptation as a point when your whole blood level of beta-hydroxybutyrate exceeds 0.5 millimolars. So it's just a technical way of saying you've got, you're now making enough of these ketone bodies that your brain can now begin to actually offset some of its dependence on glucose. And by the way, your muscles and your heart also use these ketone bodies. So there are some people, as you point out, Jimmy, who within two days of carbohydrate restriction are making sufficient levels of beta-hydroxybutyrate. And they actually, by the time your levels are therapeutic, to use a term from sort of the drug industry, you feel great. There's this horrible zone of misery where your uh, levels of ketones are not therapeutic yet, but you are restricting carbohydrates. And you kind of get into this spot where you're not taking in enough glucose to make your brain happy, but you're not generating enough ketones to offset the difference. And, um, you know, I get a lot of questions about this. I'm actually going to, I'm trying to think of a nice articulate way to explain it. And it'll turn into a post on my my blog where I'll describe this zone of misery. But nevertheless, I lived in that zone of misery for four weeks. And during that period of time, I was so lightheaded, I could not stand up without falling down. Um, I couldn't do anything athletically. So I, 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 paradoxically, if I started out very, very slow and went for a long ride of like four or five hours, the only time of the day I could feel good was when I finished that ride. And interestingly, that's the only time when my ketone bodies would be above 0.5, which probably explains why I felt good. So the two biggest mistakes I was making at that point in time were, uh, one, I was consuming too much protein. Protein um, is gluconeogenic, at least a subset of the amino acids. I believe eight of the amino acids are gluconeogenic, which means not only are they stimulating insulin, but more importantly, they get turned into uh, glycogen and therefore released from your liver um, as directly as glucose. So if you are consuming protein in an unrestricted manner, and you're consuming a high enough amount of carbs that you're kind of on the border, you actually are effectively consuming more than the carbs you think you're consuming. Right. So that was really macro problem number one, is I couldn't get my protein level low enough. And when I say low enough, I was consuming a ton of protein, probably about three grams per kilogram per day. Wow. I had to reduce that by about 50% yeah. to what I would call as a totally normal protein intake of about 1.5 grams per kilogram per day. Okay, mistake number two was I was not supplementing minerals well enough. And in particular, the mineral I was most egregious in my omission of was sodium. And that accounted for a lot of the lightheadedness, especially given that I'm a guy who, despite all of my horrible metabolic derangements, was never hypertensive. So I always had a normal kind of one 
20 over, you know, 70 blood pressure. And now in a state of, of attempted ketosis where, and, and, and nevertheless profound carb restriction, my kidneys were just dumping sodium like crazy. When the kidney dumps sodium, what does it do? The adrenal gland secretes aldosterone to try to spare sodium. And now aldosterone says, I'll trade potassium for sodium. So you take one problem and you make it worse because now you're dumping sodium and you're dumping potassium. Mm. So you're cramping, you're lightheaded, you're hypovolemic. And, you know, I mean, I I sort of joke about it now, but at the time my wife said, like, what are you doing? I mean, (laughs) the game's over, buddy. I mean, who are you doing this for? Who are you trying to prove this to? Um, But luckily, you know, Steve and Jeff um, were able to just provide me with a lot of guidance. Um, and, uh, you know, once, once we fixed those macro problems within about three days, um, everything got better. And, you know, as I said, when I got to the end of the summer and the, the quote unquote experiment was done and I could go back to eating whatever I wanted, I haven't been able to since. Yeah. And, and I know Jeff and Steve are really big into the bouillon cubes, uh, as a source of salt, um, and people are probably as scared of salt and sodium in their diet as they are saturated fat, unfortunately. Yeah, if, I, I mean, you've probably already heard the story from Gary, but it's one of my favorite stories, which is how did Gary decide to even start writing about nutrition? And it's actually the salt thing that got him involved in it. So you're right. That's just, again, and uh, you know, I'm not even Catholic. I don't know why I have all this guilt about it, but I just, again, I'm so ashamed for how mindlessly numb I was during my time in clinical medicine and all these stupid things I would just reiterate because I was taught them and I never looked at the data. And yeah, how many patients did I tell to eat less salt and less saturated fat to? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of an embarrassment actually for me personally. That well, I, uh, and it's become said those things without actually knowing why. Right. And unfortunately it's just become part and parcel of the medical uh, monopoly, I guess you can call it, of information that's out there because medical schools are still teaching the same things that you learned not that long ago uh, to new students, and then they're going to pass that along to their patients. It's almost like this legacy of sickness that's just being perpetuated by the whole culture of the medical community. Yeah, it's, um, again, I think it speaks to why, you know, Gary and I really believe that an organization like NUSI and the types of people we want to get involved in this organization are going to be necessary to change this problem structurally. I have no doubt that, you know, if I can work on this blog for the rest of my life, I can help a few people. I I feel like I've already helped people. It's really an honor when people, you know, write me and say, Peter, this is the way you've explained this made sense and I've made these changes and things. And and so I I get that. And I, um, that means a lot, but, if we want to fix the system, you got to start with the science. Until you get the science fixed, you can't get mainstream physicians to appreciate that what they've been taught has been incorrect. And yeah. if, until mainstream physicians get there, and you know, and, and I, Gary and I and other folks have talked about this a lot. What's the number? You know, it might be like twenty percent. When twenty percent of doctors look at what we talk about and say. Yeah, that's that's grounded in science. That's real. I would treat a patient with if I had a diabetic come in, the first thing I would do is get them off carbohydrates. Until you can get 20% of docs there, it's going to be hard to get that tipping point. And until you get that sort of mass adoption, I think it's going to be very difficult for policymakers to start to rewrite guidelines and policies or at the very least revisit them. 
Yeah, there's a lot of special interests at work, too, that we're not talking about from the pharmaceutical companies to Big Agra. I mean, there's just so much that's going against what you and Gary and I and different other ones are talking about that it literally is an uphill battle with this big, gigantic elephant in our way. You know, it's a great point, uh, Jimmy, and it's it's not one to take lightly because um, it's 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 not even hyperbolic to really say that. I mean, it's it's truly accurate that there are entities that are so large that um, really would be opposed to this kind of paradigm shift. Um, but I do believe, and maybe I'm naive, I do believe that in the end, the people who matter the most are the people who want what's best for people. In other words, the doctors are the key. And, you know, for all the negative sort of thing that people have to say about doctors, I, I believe most doctors actually want to do what's best for their patients. Right. And I'll use my physician as an example. So I, I live in San Diego and I have a great internist and I, you know, I feel so blessed to have both the internist and cardiologist I have because one, they were open-minded. So two years ago when I started doing all this stuff, they were or two and a half years ago now, they thought, they both said, you're kind of crazy. I, I, it's hard. I can't put my stamp of approval on what you're doing, but I support you and I'm here to help. Look, let's do all the testing that you want to get done and we'll figure this out. Well, my internist and cardiologist have become 180 converts now. In fact, I last saw my internist, I don't know, two months ago for an ear infection I had. And he said, by the way, uh, Peter, you know, now that I've seen what this has done in you and five of your friends, because now there's a whole bunch of my friends that see him as well, but have also kind of changed their lives. Mm-hmm. He said, I, I feel like I need to be just telling all of my patients about you because 80% of the people that walk in here have, are on the path to metabolic syndrome if they're already there. And I'm worried that what I'm telling them is wrong because what I'm telling them to do is what the poster on my door says, which is stop eating fat, eat more complex grains, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, I've seen enough now and you've made me read enough that I realize that's actually not true. And so I think to myself, gosh, when 20% of doctors can experience what he's experienced, it's not actually clear to me that the, the lobbying powers that be are going to get their way. Now again, maybe I'm naive and maybe this is going to require a lot of careful thought and strategy, but I believe that we got to keep our eye on the ball and understand who cares the most. And it's the people who are afflicted with these horrible diseases and the physicians who want to take care of them. And of course, everyone around that, right? So I'm talking about the entire infrastructure of nutrition. So we'll see. Um, I'm willing to, uh, to spend the rest of my life working on it. So hopefully we can move the needle together. Well, and we need people like you uh, who have the medical credentials and this newfound knowledge. Um, Do you see this kind of as a growing trend amongst peers of your age, or is this just, are you just an anomaly? (laughs) You know, that's a great question, Jimmy. I don't know if I have enough data to answer that with with authority, but, you know, so it's always anecdotal. I do think there is a little bit of a movement that's going on in the country that goes even broader than just medicine. Yeah. I think people are becoming a little bit distrustful of authority in general. And, you know, I gave this talk once, um, and someone said to me, you know, Peter, if, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're basically saying is the government is wrong. Because all of these recommendations stem from formal recommendations and food policies that the government's put in place. And, they, and I sort of realized, I was like, yeah, you're right, I, I am sort of saying that the government, the government is wrong. 
And he said, well, it's really hard for me to accept. And I said, well, I understand that. And I'm not one of these guys who's like anti-government and, you know, anarchy rules and all that kind of stuff. But I said, let's, let's be honest, guys. The people who make up the government are people. People make mistakes. And if you need any evidence that these mistakes have been made in the past, look no further than, you know, deregulating financial derivatives or creating, you know, or regulating and allowing subprime mortgages to exist and creating, remember, creating laws and policies that enabled these things to exist. Um, you know, there was a day when the government told you smoking was okay, too. So, you know, the government has a history of making mistakes. And I, and I don't say this to pick on them. I just say this to point out the fact that nobody's perfect and you need checks and balances in the system. So what I hope we're embarking on today is a new era where people are at the very least willing to say a whole bunch of changes in food policy and infrastructure took place 40 years ago. The results of that natural experiment, albeit an uncontrolled experiment, aren't looking so good. The people who put those rules into place have a track record of making mistakes. Do those two facts justify us re-examining this? Hmm. And I hope the answer to that is yes. Yeah. And you make the case on your waroninsulin.com website that the time is now, it's pretty unique that, that right now we are at the perfect time to make this change happen. Can you kind of go through some of those thoughts? Because I thought that was a really interesting part of your whole, what you do. Yeah. So I think the time is now for a number of reasons. So first off, I believe there, there are a couple of factors at play here. One is the health of our society. When I was born, uh, Jimmy, 15% of Americans were obese and less than 2% of Americans had type 2 diabetes. Today, 35% of Americans are obese. 35% of Americans have a body mass index above 35 and nearly 8% of Americans are diagnosed diabetics. When you factor in how many people are pre-diabetic and or undiagnosed, that mm -hmm. number increases by probably threefold. Sure. It turns out that's not really sustainable. So if you didn't actually even care about human suffering and you were purely looking at this through an economic lens, you would say that's not sustainable. McKinsey & Company, which is my former employer, actually released a very nice study. It was um, co-authored by a guy I know very well named Ed Levine. Um, this was released two weeks ago that was examining the costs of healthcare in the United States. Um, some of the numbers are staggering. Let me give you an example. Healthcare spending in the United States as a share of GDP is almost 18%. Mm. So there is no country in the world that spends more in absolute dollars or percentage of wealth on healthcare. Now, let me take a step back and acknowledge that that's not all a bad thing. That implies that we have amazing technology um, and we have the economic means to devote 20% of our earnings to healthcare. But the question is, what's driving that up so much? Because what's alarming is if you go back to 1960 and you look at the growth, the economic growth of the United States, you look at the GDP growth, you would see that over a 50-year period, economic growth was about 168%, meaning we almost doubled economic prosperity in that 50-year period. But healthcare spending went up 818% during that same period of time. Hmm. So... It's one thing to say, hey, we're proud that we have the luxury of spending 18% of our GDP on healthcare. But the problem, and, and that would be an 
we could we could we could discuss the merits of that argument were it not for the fact that the gap between them is growing geometrically and it's now five times different. In other words, healthcare spending has grown five X relative to economic growth over the last forty to fifty years. So if you take the lens of if you take the economic view of this, it's not sustainable. And in my humble opinion, there are three problems that will bankrupt the United States within the next 30 years, if not resolved. And I believe the first of those is actually health care. The other two, if anyone's interested, are uh, pension programs. So pension reform is a big issue that I don't spend any time thinking about other than sort of talking to people who know a lot about it. And the other is energy security. Um, so that's one issue. The second issue is let's start to talk about what is no longer disputed in medicine. What is no longer disputed in medicine is that obesity is the central and underlying disorder that predisposes people to a higher than normal rate of not just obviously insulin resistance and diabetes, but fatty liver disease, atherosclerosis, high blood pressure, stroke, cancer, asthma, sleep apnea, neurodegenerative disease, Alzheimer's disease. All of these diseases are clustered around obesity. So nobody disputes that. Of course, the dispute and the reason we're having this discussion is what makes you obese, right? So conventional wisdom says you're made obese because you're eating too much fat or eating too many calories or not exercising enough. But the point is, even if you don't agree on the second order discussion, just the first order point should be upsetting enough because what it suggests is that at least 60% of the deaths in the United States result directly from diseases that are linked to obesity. Hmm. And the third issue I would just point out is the unnecessary human suffering that comes long before we start talking about people dying. You know, I, I think about all the people out there um, that, I, that I once passed judgment on, right? And, I, and again, I, I, I did it silently. Um, I think I always took care of every person that ever showed up. and I always wanted to make sure I was providing the best care. But ultimately, I was judging people by saying, look, you're overweight or you're, you have diabetes. It's because of you know, you're doing the wrong stuff, you're eating too much. And now I realize, I don't, I'm not sure that that's true. I think that these are people who are trying very hard to do what's right, but are suffering because they have the wrong information. Um, and they live in a world where the infrastructure, the infrastructure of food is such that even if you had an inkling of what the right thing to do was, it's very difficult to do. So, you know, that's, and there are other reasons. I mean, I, you know, look at the, look at, look at what comes out in, in, in conventional newspapers, right? If you read the New York Times every week, if you read the fat trap, if you read the, you know, we've discovered irisin um, articles, they're all effectively saying the same sort of thing, which is this is a problem that can't be fixed, right? If the answer is we have to synthetically create irisin and inject it into ourselves to convert the 1% of our brown fat cells into 3% to increase our thermogenesis, if that's really what the world has come to, that's effectively saying it's hopeless. And, and, and you know, the reason Gary and I wrote that letter to the New York Times in response to the fat trap was to say that, you know, we think this is sad. We think it's sad that, you know, Ms. Parker Pope has acknowledged that she's 60 pounds overweight, which I, I think took a lot of courage to do. And the sad part is she's writing this article saying that she's worried she's always going to be that way. Um, and, and, and what I'm saying is, no, I don't, I don't think you need to be that way. I think you're applying the wrong treatment to the problem. Uh, and finally, I, I think the other really pressing issue right now is that medical research has bifurcated on a number of paths that are leaving obesity out in the dark. So let me give you an example of what I mean. If you took a look at the funding 
um, and strategic planning for the NIH, ADA, AMA, AHA, USDA, you'll see that there is a disproportionate amount of funding that is going into genomics research as opposed to clinical research. In other words, it's much more interesting to study you know, things like irisin and, you know, brown fat to white fat conversion and vice versa than it is to actually ask the clinical question, what's making somebody get fat? And let's actually do this in a clinical study. Secondly, when you look at obesity as a disease and contrast it with all of the other diseases that are getting attention, no one's actually studying the obesity problem. Um, so we're studying the end order diseases that are a result of obesity or certainly at the very least increase significantly because of obesity, but we're not starting at the you know top of the pyramid, so to speak. So that's kind of a long-winded way of saying, Jimmy, I think there are a lot of things going on right now that say that we've got to act now because if we don't, I think we're going to be in a real tough spot in 20 years if we don't figure out how to reverse this trend. Well, and I'm encouraged by some things I'm seeing because it's almost like the handwriting is on the wall that the current uh, dietary paradigm that's been out there uh, of lowering your fat, eating less calories, exercising till you drop, uh, is starting to, to crumble. Um, and one such thing is all these studies that have been coming out, quote-unquote studies, the last few years looking at calories and how it doesn't really matter what diet you do as long as you watch your calories. And then you look at these studies and you notice that the there's really not that much difference in the macronutrient ratio of these calorie, of these, uh, calorie studies. Um and so I think they're just desperately looking for a way to discredit what they know is true. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, obviously, the study that got a lot of press in the last few weeks was the study that came out in uh, um, the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA. Right. Uh, it, it was a study that was funded primarily by the USDA, but also run through Pennington. Um, I, don't, I don't know the authors of the study. Um, and I read the study, obviously, with great interest and you know, I, I'll, I'll tell you, my, my take on this is sort of similar to what you're saying, Jimmy, which is the study was actually really well done. This was an elegant study. It's, it's, it's really the, the hallmark of a very good efficacy study, very well controlled. Uh, the duration of the study was phenomenal to have that many patients in a metabolic ward over that period of time. They did really good testing. They did everything right except one thing, Jimmy. They tested the wrong hypothesis. Right. They held carbohydrate constants and they varied protein intake. Right. And I, again, I'm hopefully I'll get a chance to speak with, with some of the authors at some point because I'd really like to get a better understanding of why that was the question they asked. But I fear that when you're asking the wrong question, you don't, the answer you get doesn't really matter. And, uh, you know, I was really, really blessed when I um, did my fellowship at the NIH because I, I got to work for a guy named Steve Rosenberg. Steve Rosenberg is uh, an amazing physician scientist um, and, a, and a, just a profound mentor to me, really the, the fellow who created the field of immune-based therapy. So the projects I worked on um, were, were looking at ways to get the immune system to combat cancer. But, but the most important thing I learned from, from Dr. Rosenberg was just that, which was what separates the good scientists from the great scientists are the people who know how to ask the right questions. And then the people who know how to design experiments that specifically answer the right questions. Um, you know, he loves telling the story about how Einstein, who won the Nobel Prize um, for not actually being the first to describe a phenomenon, but for being the first to be able to put together all the pieces of the data 
that underlied the photoelectric effect to actually explain what was going on. There's a lot of people assume, and I did too, I think, that, that Einstein won the Nobel Prize for relativity, but it was actually the photoelectric effect, and it was more a result of his careful ability to examine the data, ask the right questions, and then do the right experiments. And so um, I think it's going to be really important for 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 the community going forward, the scientific community, to always keep keep their eye on that ball. If you love great olive oil, do I have a deal for you. As one of my listeners, you're entitled to receive for $1, listen to this, for just $1, a $39 bottle of one of the world's finest artisanal olive oils. And what makes this oil really special? It was just fresh pressed at the new harvest, so it's bursting with more harvest fresh flavor than any olive oil you've ever tasted. It's yours for just one buck to help cover shipping as your introduction to the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. And there's no obligation to buy anything now or ever. But what exactly is fresh pressed olive oil? And why is it so much more flavorful than store-bought olive oil? The problem with store-bought olive oils is that they can sit on store shelves for months, even years, growing stale or even rancid. The olive, after all, is a fruit. And olive oil is similar to a fruit juice in that it's much more flavorful when fresh pressed. And that's what's unique about oils from my friends at the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. They rush their oils direct to your door by plane and special delivery truck straight from the latest harvest. This means that you, your family, and lucky guests can enjoy top-of-the-line artisanal olive oils at their peak of harvest-fresh flavor and nutritional value. This is great news for us low-carb lovers because pure, fresh-pressed olive oil has zero carbs. Zero carbs! It adds whole layers of amazing flavor to your favorite low-carb dishes, your roasted vegetables, healthy salads, grilled meats, delicate fish, toasted nuts. Oh yeah! I can tell you from personal experience, once you try this fresh-pressed olive oil, you'll never go back to store-bought again. Try it yourself and see. For your 39 bottle for a buck, go to jimmyoliveoil.com. That's jimmyoliveoil.com. One more time jimmyoliveoil.com lovemytummy.com lovemytummy.com why am i saying this living low carb is a choice you are making because you care about your health and you love your tummy but sometimes even the best choices in the food we eat will still lead to times when you find yourself feeling bloated or having that heavy feeling after a meal and you just don't know what to do diet changes probiotics and even medications are helping some but you can't find real relief well let me introduce you to developed by a board-certified gastroenterologist to naturally address issues such as bloating, SIBO, IBS, leaky gut, and improve and protect cellular digestive health. Atrantil is all-natural, over-the-counter, works within the bowel, is very well-tolerated, and has no known drug interactions. Published clinical trials have shown that better than four out of five people that suffer from digestive symptoms will find relief with Atrantil. Backed by a 100% money-back guarantee. So love yourself, love your health, and visit lovemytummy.com. Be sure to use the coupon code JIMMY for 15% off of your order. Even the name is proven to make you feel better. Hey everybody, and welcome to Ask the Low Carb Experts. This is your opportunity to speak directly with the health experts 
uh, in the realm of diet, nutrition, and fitness. We've got a great show in store for you tonight. If you've been listening to any of my podcasts or read my blog for really any length of time, then you know uh, and you've heard me talk about one of the basic philosophies that I think is an important part of living a healthy lifestyle. Here it is. Find the diet and health plan that is right for you, follow that plan exactly as prescribed by the author, and then keep doing that plan for the rest of your life, making appropriate tweaks along the way to keep it working over the long term. But you might be thinking to yourself, how do I go about figuring that out? What is the right diet and lifestyle plan for me? Well, that's exactly what we're going to be exploring here in episode 33 of Ask the Low Carb Experts with a very highly qualified guest expert. He is Dr. Peter Atia from the Eating Academy blog. Eatingacademy.com is his website. Dr. Atia, welcome to the show. Jimmy, thanks very much for having me. Oh, it's so good to talk to you. I had you on the Living La Vida Low Carb Show earlier this year. A lot of people loved what they had to hear from you. So I, I said, you know what? I got to get him on Ask the Low Carb Experts uh, to, quite frankly, address a topic that a lot of people are confused about. They, they really don't know. You know, they've heard this this whole idea of find the plan that's right for you. But how do you go about figuring out what that diet plan is? So uh, can you kind of give us an overview of this topic? Yeah, I'd be happy to, and I'll probably um, end up sort of using my own personal story as sure. an example, because yeah. I think sometimes practical and tangible examples resonate with folks. But exactly. I also want to stress a couple things you've already alluded to, um, and that is that the diet that's right for you is, by definition, one that is sustainable for you. And what's sustainable for Peter and what's sustainable for Jimmy might not be sustainable for you. And um, I think one of the biggest misconceptions in nutrition is that diets are temporary. Um, And perhaps they are by nature of that terminology, but the only thing I think that really matters is finding sustainable lifestyle uh, changes um, that you can implement day in and day out, independent of your surrounding environment. Um, And I think that's where most people can get to uh, a level that they're happy at. And I think that the absence of that or the inability to do that is what really leads to the really high amount of um, recidivism that we see um, in the in the in the quote unquote diet space. Yep. So, so so with that, let me just kind of tell a little bit of my own personal story, which perhaps some folks have already heard, but maybe I'll even share a few details um, folks aren't aware of. Um, up until three years ago, I was uh, pretty overweight, <laughs> um, and people always find it interesting because I exercised about four hours a day. Um, wow. And still weighed, you know, probably 40 pounds more than I do now, and more importantly, had, had metabolic syndrome. So my triglycerides, my fasting glucose, uh, and my HDLC were all in the red zone. And the other two markers, uh, blood pressure and waist girth, were not quite there, but I'm sure with enough time I would have got there. Yeah. Um, family history, not great. Every man in my family died of heart disease, so I kind of knew what was coming my way. Mm. Um and I was already on drugs to take care of some of that stuff. So kind of needed to know what needed to be done. And, um, you know, one of the first experiments I tried was, was going on a vegan diet. And I did that for about six months. Um, now, this was several years before the three-year-ago mark. But the point is, interestingly, I didn't um, get any better or any worse on a vegan diet. Um, and I had no idea why until perhaps a year or two ago when I really started to think about everything I'd learned. 
But I want to point that out to say that that doesn't mean a vegan diet doesn't work. You know, it doesn't mean that a vegan diet can't help uh, some people or many people. But it turned out it couldn't help me. And it was important to understand that. And I think in retrospect, I now understand that because of my incoming insulin resistance, coupled with the nature of my diet on the way in, um, that intervention turned out not to be very positive. Uh, it wasn't negative, but it didn't, it didn't fix me. And the diet that ended up fixing me um, was one that basically removed um, all sugar, all, and when I say sugar, I mean not just the white granules, which I never really consumed in the first place, but more importantly, the, the sort of hidden sugars you don't really think of, the high fructose corn syrup, the beet sugar, the cane sugar, all the artificial, um, you know, sort of sweeteners that show up, removing that stuff, and then systematically over time, tweaking, as you say, Jimmy, and removing more and more of the refined uh, carbohydrates, grains, and starches from my diet. Right. Until, lo and behold, about a year and a half ago, I found myself in a state of full-blown nutritional ketosis. Um, and I want to just say at the outset here, I, you know, a lot of people assume that because I live in ketosis that I kind of assume that that's where everyone ought to be. And I want to be real clear. I, I don't think that for a moment. Um, and, I, and I think um, I just happen to find that for me, this is a diet that makes a ton of sense. Um, but I work with a number of people who, um, for whom that, that, that just doesn't work uh, for a number of reasons. And we can maybe talk about some of those throughout the show. So um, I think the most important thing I'd want to say is the following. To find out what diet is right for you requires patience. You've got to be willing to make an intervention, stay with the intervention, um, and evaluate the intervention. Uh, secondly, you want to have some objective measurements that you can track. And it doesn't have to necessarily be the most high-powered, highfalutin sort of, you know, advanced diagnostic testing. Um, it can be really simple things. It can be, how does your clothing fit? What does the scale say? Yep. What does your standard blood work say? You know, what do your glucose levels look like? What do your triglyceride levels look like? Those sorts of things. Um, but you've got to have some objective measurement, I think, to go by. And subjective things are great, too. How do you feel matters. Um, the next thing you've got to have is you've got to have access to help. Um, a lot of people, like me, kind of had to figure some of this stuff out the hard way. Um, and I was still lucky that, you know, once I really ran into some challenging situations, I had people that I could reach out to who, who were true experts. And um, so I think whether it be someone like Jimmy and his site or a lot of the other folks out there who, who really come across as sort of, you know, credible folks who are, who are trying to provide legitimate information to folks, it's always good to, to rely on stuff out there that, you know, people may have experienced the problems you're experiencing before. It's always good to lean out to them. Another thing that's really helpful and sadly not always available is a physician who you have a great relationship with. Yep. Um, I was really fortunate. My physician um, was equally uh, confused by my metabolic syndrome given my uh, apparently healthy lifestyle of following a good American diet. You know, I didn't eat any fast food, and as you recall, I exercised constantly. And so when I started suggesting to my physician the things I wanted to try doing, uh, rather than dismiss me and suggest that I was crazy, he said, well, Peter, I, I completely support that decision, and uh, I'm here to kind of shepherd you along that in any way that I can. And I, and I felt really, you know, really um, fortunate to have that. And yeah. I, one of the things I say to folks that, that I work with or just that come to me for advice is, um, if you don't have a physician like that, get one. Um, right. 
don't forget who the consumer is in that relationship. And if your physician can't support you, it might be time to find a new physician. <laughs> and, um, and Peter, and, and I so actually, with that, Jimmy, I, I don't know if there are any other points you'd like me to kind of address up front, but I know people don't really just want to hear my monologue. They, they probably have some questions. Well, and Peter, I actually created a resource uh, of a list of low-carb doctors. It's not really, really big, maybe a few hundred, but uh, perhaps people can find one in their area. It's at lowcarbdoctors.blogspot.com. A uh, really good resource to help you find a doctor near you. And on this very show, about six months ago, we had Dr. Mary Vernon on here, and she talked about how to talk to and ask questions of your non-low-carb friendly doctor. So we'll provide a link to that so people can go and listen to that show, which was very informative about the kind of relationship that you were just talking about. Hey, you're the boss. You're you're the consumer. Um, you pick and choose who you want to work with. So definitely good advice. But yes, let's open the phone line. So if you are listening live and you have a question for Dr. Peter Atia about finding the diet that's right for you, just press star six and we'll get you in the Q&A queue to ask your question. But uh, Peter, we've got a bunch of emails we want to get to and we're going to start with Renee's question. She says, I've been refining what I think is my perfect diet for about three years now. During that time, my diet has drastically changed for the better. I eat a very strict paleo autoimmune diet with no dairy, no nuts, and no nightshades. This has worked very well for me. Now I'm experiencing or experimenting with a few little things here and there to tweak my diet that help me go from feeling good to feeling great. I'm wondering about the cross-reactivity of coffee with gluten. I've heard that this can be a problem for some people, but I dismissed it because I didn't want to believe that it could be a problem for me. But now I'm thinking that it is a problem because after I quit drinking coffee, I started losing weight with no other changes. And it's not just calories because I had coconut oil in my coffee and now I have coconut oil cocoa instead. I know that gut issues are the minority of manifestation of gluten intolerance, so this effortless weight loss might be showing some type of healing. I also heard a study came out earlier this year confirming that there is a coffee gluten cross-reactivity as a significant problem. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously this um, this this person uh, is really dialed in, and, and this is sort of the graduate level, uh, <laughs> you know, pupil, if you will. Oh, yeah. Um, so I think, you know, first thing I want to do is just kind of highlight a couple of things in that question that were embedded, right, which is... Um, this person sounds like they've done what I did, which is um, a sort of deliberate set of steps that were each one perhaps incremental, but over the long period of time dramatic in terms of changing over three years um, the, w- the way the way he or she ate. Um, the second thing is, you know, now that they're in kind of a steady state, they're looking to you know, see if they can optimize a little bit further. Yep. Um, and then, of course, they're turning to the literature, which I think is actually always a good idea. Now, the one thing I want to say is it's important to understand that literature is all, by definition, population-based. Um, and, and that's great. I mean, I think it's really important to understand from a statistical standpoint what is true at the level of the population. All of that assumes, of course, that the studies uh, that are being referenced are appropriate, accurate, uh, representative, reproducible, et cetera. And that's a big if. Many studies, of course, um, as, your, as your listeners know, uh, do not meet those, those hurdles. But if we, if we assume for a moment that, that the studies we look at do, it still doesn't actually answer the question, what does it mean for me? Um, and that's, 
the good news is we don't have to make dietary recommendations based on, you know, broad personal um, or broad, broad recommendations based on personal outcomes. But the challenge is it means that there's always going to be some need to kind of sniff test what a recommendation is or what a paper suggests or what anybody, myself included, suggests. Now, the, the gluten-caffeine cross-reactivity is an interesting one um, because I think there is probably uh, ample reason to believe that um, there's a problem with that. The question that's not entirely clear, at least to me personally, is is one simply exacerbating and amplifying the other? Namely, is, the, is caffeine in the presence of gluten the issue and caffeine in the uh, absence of gluten not the issue? Or is there a true synergy where um, caffeine actually makes gluten worse? Um, or gluten makes caffeine worse, for that matter? I don't know the answer to that question. Um, perhaps somebody does. Um, but I haven't seen a study that, that would um, directly answer that question. So mm -hmm. to, this, to this listener's comment, what I would suggest is the following. Um, the observation that you can lose weight without cutting calories immediately is, is quite possible. Obviously, without violating the first law of thermodynamics, the energy in and the energy out of the system can easily be matched with a change in gut flora. The simplest example of that would be um, in a gut biota environment where a person is not um, either absorbing all of the nutrient content in a food um, and therefore not storing or utilizing that energy and or uh, changes in gut biota that interfere with the sort of hormonal milieu of the body that then change how um, other foods are processed. Caffeine is kind of an interesting one because there's actually evidence out there that suggests that caffeine um, impacts either um, or I should say and or um, lipoprotein lipase activity and um, hormone specific lipase um, and obviously depending on where um, HSL or LPL sit or reside in the body they can either increase or decrease our storage of fatty acid. Now for most people it actually appears that caffeine in its, um, in its, in its uh, isolation actually increases um, somewhat the flux of fatty acid, uh, meaning the mobilization of stored triglyceride into free fatty acid. Um, but it sounds like, if I'm understanding this reader's question correctly, um, they've observed that gluten and caffeine were, were not a good combination. Right. Um, and more to the point, if this person is on a pretty strict paleo diet, I would guess that they're already in a pretty low gluten state, which may actually suggest that in this particular individual, caffeine... Um, may actually um, be somewhat facilitating uh, retention of, of adipose tissue. Hmm. I think what I would suggest is the following. Always go back to self-experimentation. Do the experiment, right? So um, change no other variable and ask the question, what happens if for four to six weeks, which I think is kind of the length of time you need to do these and give these um, interventions a chance to take, um, remove just the agent that you suspect is the issue. And it becomes challenging to do that when you're looking at agents that invariably come linked with others. Uh, but in the case of caffeine, it's actually pretty easy to do that. Now, 
The reader suggested a substitution of cocoa, but of course, cocoa often contains caffeine as well. So <laughs> a switch from coffee to cocoa may not be, um, you know, if I understood the question correctly, the ideal transition to make. Right. Um, it may be a chemical that's used in the preparation of the coffee. Um, so, so, you know, hard for me to know much more than that, but it sounds like this, this person's on the right track thinking about it, but perhaps, uh, quote-unquote, cleaning up the experiment a little bit uh, may shed more light on this. Sure. All right, so we'll move on to the next emailed question. It comes from Michael. He says, I'd like to hear Peter address hypercaloric feeding on a ketogenic diet in combination with weight training. Is it possible for someone who is already basically lean and healthy to overeat and train his way up in muscle size? What is the likely practical limit to size gain and performance in weightlifting with insulin levels being kept so very low? So it's an interesting question, and there are several questions embedded within it, but I think for the purpose of simplicity, I'd say the following. If the individual is saying, take a lean individual with a relatively um, small amount of adipose tissue and ask the question, um, can they gain weight, uh, muscle weight specifically, or muscle mass on a ketogenic diet, um, the answer, at least according to uh, research I've seen, is yes. Um, now, it is important to understand that insulin is an anabolic hormone, and sometimes anabolic means good things, sometimes it doesn't, but anabolic means building. Right. And so insulin promotes storage, um, and that means storage of, you know, amino acids, uh, glycogen, and uh, fat. So the question is, can you put on muscle in a low-insulin environment? Now, um, Jeff Volick actually published a study a couple of years ago that looked at um, three arms, and I don't have the study in front of me, I apologize, um, but the study looked at an arm that was doing, I want to say, just a dietary intervention, a dietary intervention that was very low in uh, insulin, mm-hmm. and a dietary intervention that was high in insulin, and the latter two also combined resistance training, high-intensity resistance training. Right. The results of this study suggested that the greatest amount of uh, lean tissue gain and fat tissue lost was actually um, in the low-insulin, high-resistance training or high-intensity training um, regimen. Wow which certainly suggests that you can, in fact, put on muscle um, without putting on fat. And in the case of these subjects, now keep in mind, these subjects started out, um, I believe, at BMI probably in the high 20s, low 30s. Yep. So that doesn't directly answer the question of this uh, listener because it sounds like he's already starting out at a very low BMI, probably, you know, in the 25 or below range. Yep. And so technically, it's not entirely clear that you can extrapolate from that. We know it's probably easier to give up adipose tissue when your body fat is, you know, 20 to 25 percent than when it's 7 to 8 percent. I can say that personally, um, my body fat by DEXA, um, you know, in the last two years since I've lost, you know, I started at about 25 percent, but it now hovers between sort of 7 and 9 percent. And I know that it's pretty difficult for me to try to get below that. Um, and if I want to put on muscle, I tend to have to add, uh, you know, a pound or two of fat. So it's possible to gain sort of, at least in my personal experience, you know, three to four pounds of muscle, but it may come with a pound of fat. 
Now, it still makes you leaner in aggregate, um, but it at least suggests to me that to go from being relatively lean to a place where you are adding muscle and taking off fat um, probably starts to depend on genetic factors as well. Obviously, everybody walks around with different levels of testosterone and other anabolic hormones that are produced endogenously. And um, I think that, you know, some of those hormones may start to play a predominant role in the ability to do what this uh, listener asks, um, even beyond just the levels of insulin at this point. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting this question came up, Peter, because uh, I'm in the midst of my uh, own nutritional ketosis experiment uh, coming up on the six months. And over the last two months, I've been really hot and heavy just about every three days, lifting very heavy in the gym uh, to see how I do. And of course, performance-wise, everything's great. What I'm interested in seeing is my difference between my DEXA scan before I started the hot and heavy lifting and then what it's going to look like here in a couple weeks when I get a second one done two months later. I'm fully anticipating fat loss and muscle gain. Yeah. And again, you know, depending on where you started, Jimmy, I think, um, I think that is quite possible. Um, and obviously, the other thing to keep in mind that goes without say is not all lifting is the same, right? Right, right. Um, we tend to oversimplify things, I think, by talking about just exercise in a black box right. as though all forms of exercise are the same. That's right. And even when we partition it out into the difference between resistance training and aerobic conditioning, even within resistance training, there are correct ways to train and supplement um, and perhaps ways that aren't quite as effective. Uh, you know, I don't pretend to be an expert in that arena, um, and I tend to rely uh, extensively on other resources and, and personnel to help me sort of guide the choice of exercises that I do and supplements that I use around that. Yep. Well, let's move on to the next question. It comes from Mike. Uh, Mike says, I have found success stabilizing my weight on a diet of 20 to 30 grams of carbohydrates per day. However, I can't seem to lose those last few stubborn pounds. I'm five foot, eight inch tall male, currently weigh 160 pounds with 19% body fat. My goal is to get down to about 15% body fat. I started monitoring my ketones and after a month was able to lose about 4 pounds and 1% of body fat, but it was very hard for me to maintain that high percentage of fat in my diet that's required to get my ketone levels high enough. Recently, I started slow lifting and I really like that program, but when I increased my protein to aid muscle development, I knocked myself out of ketosis and I'm right back to 19% fat 160 pounds. I suspect a hormonal problem is contributing to the difficulties in losing, but I've tested my testosterone twice. Both times it's on the high end of the normal range. Recently, my TSH was fine at 1.9. My free T4 direct was in the middle of the lab range at 1.32. TPOAB was also in the middle at 12. My free T3 was on the low end of the lab range at 2.2. Given all of the above, are there any variations I could try in my diet that would get me unstuck and help me reach my goal? Well, so again, you've, uh, you've got a pretty, uh, you've got a pretty erudite readership, uh, Jimmy. These, these folks don't throw any softballs. And I'm hoping for, uh, Hey, should I stop eating Snickers bars and potato chips? <laughs> no, not um, <laughs> So, okay, a couple things to comment on here. First of all, let's not take, uh, let's not get terribly concerned about 1% changes in DEXA. One of the things, you know, I, I use DEXA so much 
that I've started to experiment with DEXA to find out just how accurate it is. And the first thing I will argue is that at best, DEXA is about plus or minus 1%. So mm -hmm. a change from, you know, 19 to 18 to 19 could easily be nothing um, or it could be 2%. The other thing is DEXA seems pretty highly dependent on when in the day you do it and even what you wear, whether you're wearing compression shorts or non-compression shorts, whether you're in clothing or not in clothing, whether you do it on a, you know, a fast or not on a fast. So there's a whole bunch of stuff we don't yet know about DEXA. So yeah. I think while DEXA is clearly the gold standard for body composition, we, um, we don't want to go too, too crazy um, worrying about 1% changes um, back and forth. So, so with all that said... Um, individuals basically saying, look, I've got normal testosterone levels. Um, I'm having a hard time putting on muscle. When I increase protein, I knock myself out of ketosis. There's a whole bunch of things going on here. First thing the individual's got to ask themselves is, what am I optimizing for? Um, you know, taking a step back from all of this, I, I think there are really five variables that, you know, people ought to consider when they make a dietary intervention. Um, variables that we would like to optimize around. So one is body composition. Want to have less fat and or more muscle, for example. Another would be disease risk. So I want to improve biomarkers to reduce my likelihood or risk of subsequent disease, in particular disease that uh, cluster around metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance, diseases like diabetes, cancer, heart disease, cerebrovascular disease, Alzheimer's disease. A third thing people may want to cluster around uh, or optimize around, rather, is athletic performance. I want to, you know, run my first marathon, and I'm really having a hard time with my nutrition around that. Might be another reason to change. Another might be energy levels, overall energy levels. And finally, the fifth one that I tend to categorize is mental acuity. Now, when I talk with people who are interested in making a dietary modification, the first thing I do is get them to prioritize for me what the order is that they want to um, optimize. Because it's very hard in life to have everything. You can't say, I want to be off the charts on every metric. You've got to kind of say, look, I want to really put my eggs in this basket, but also have a little bit over here and a little bit over here. Mm -hmm. Second thing you try to do is you figure out, using as much testing as you can, plus just family history, talking to people, what are they genetically predisposed to look like? You know, one of the unfortunate consequences of our evolution is that body habitus, body shape, is a highly preserved genetic trait. Um, so just as you inherited, whether your hair is dark or light or curly or straight, your eye color, many of those variables from your parents, you also tend to inherit their body type. Um, and this clearly speaks to the nature that um, body habitus is a largely genetically preserved trait. So um, my wife, for example, who is five foot six and weighs 108 pounds and has a BMI of 18, inherited that from her parents. And if she were to eat Oreo cookies every day for every meal, she actually wouldn't be able to gain weight. She can't gain weight. Um, she's somehow immune to fat storage. Um, and so that's one end of the spectrum. And, you know, it's not to say that she doesn't improve her disease risk profile by dramatically changing her diet. Um, but it says that body habitus isn't one of the things that she has a lot of control over. And by the same point, it'd be hard for her to put on a lot of muscle. If she decided tomorrow she wanted to be Miss Olympia, um, you know, I, she's never going to do it. Um, 
And so, you know, one thing that this individual may want to think about is just, you know, what are kind of the um, genetic boundary conditions that they're probably predisposed to. Now, I will say this, to go from 19% to 15% is almost certainly within this person's purview. It's not like this person says, I want to, um, you know, be, a, you know, a jockey in horse racing and I need to get from 160 pounds down to 95 pounds. I mean, I think that, you know, at that point we may be pushing the boundaries of what, what the genetics will allow. So assuming for a moment that this person does um, have a goal that's within their genetic reach and that that's the highest prioritization of them, the first thing I might say is perhaps ketosis isn't actually the ideal diet. Um, you know, ketosis is really good, I think, for people who are optimizing around um, a normalization of energy levels um, and mental acuity. There's a lot of really exciting work, especially coming out of the labs of um, Richard Clark and uh, sorry, Richard Beach and Kieran Clark at NIH and Oxford University, respectively, that are really the, the experts on the overall metabolism of ketosis from a non-nutritional standpoint. They use ketone esters to generate very high levels of ketones that have shown dramatic improvements along all of these parameters. Um, while it's true that many people can lose weight on a ketogenic diet, it sounds like for this individual, um, they may have plateaued. And so in that situation, um, it might be worth trying something completely different. For example, it might be worth trying a diet um, that has higher amounts of protein, and not just higher amounts of protein, but protein at the right time of day and the right type of protein. Those are two different issues. Um, around um, a different type of exercise regimen. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways to get from 19% to 15%, um, and probably the best combination of it is kind of consistent with what you were describing earlier, Jimmy, which is ideally you'd want to put on a couple of pounds of lean tissue and remove a couple of pounds of fat tissue. Yep. Um, so you think my, my advice for this, for this listener would be to not fixate necessarily on being in a state of ketosis um, and accept the fact that you may actually achieve your results uh, by looking at other dietary interventions that even take you out of ketosis, uh, they probably still have a lot in common. They're probably 80% aligned with what, with what that individual is doing, um, but may not be exactly aligned with that. And certainly um, this individual's concern about the difficulty in maintaining a high consumption of fat is, is, a, is a particularly uh, understandable one. Um, I think the, true is, the same is true for folks who may struggle to consume lots of dairy. Um, and I think there are some people who can't tolerate any amount of dairy. So, um, again, you've got to kind of be willing to sort of let go of, um, of, of things that worked in the past in exchange for maybe things that might work even better in the future. Yeah. I do like that Mike said he started the slow lifting, so that's kind of a, a new exercise program, and he increased his protein. I just say keep tweaking, Mike. I mean, I, I myself have found that, uh, you know, going a little bit of intermittent fasting has helped me uh, shed some pounds while still exercising and doing all the things that uh, you need to do to, to make the, the body fat come down. Just keep working at it, keep tweaking, and it sounds like a... Sounds like Peter's giving you some good advice to uh, try as well. And the, and the other thing, maybe, yeah. Jimmy, that I'd add to that is, Please. you know, there are a few other uh, things you may want to look at, you know, with your physician's blessing. So even looking at estradiol levels, human sex binding globulin, free testosterone, a few other things that go beyond just uh, testosterone levels. Yeah. Yeah, I had that full panel run up, and it's amazing. Some of those numbers can be out of whack, and you have no clue until you run them. 
So let's go on to the next question. It comes from Mary Ann. She is a 76-year-old woman with the H63D gene for hemochromatosis. She has high ferritin levels. Uh, She says, my latest test was 436. It goes up and down. It's been an all-time high of 625. My doctors say that a phlebotomy is unnecessary unless it goes over 1,000. I also have Uh, paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, which I understand eating paleo is the best for this. My AFib discussion board members say my ferritin is way too high now. So what diet would you say is best for somebody like me? You know, unfortunately, Jimmy, it's it's really impossible for me to troubleshoot at that level of detail what the right diet is. Um, I I think there are a number of medical issues there, and, and obviously it's just impossible for me to kind of provide um, sound medical advice, sure. um, because now we're sort of dealing with how do we treat paroxysmal AFib, uh, possible iron overload. These are really things that are, are unfortunately best managed in the physician's office and, right. and probably not through kind of a, a forum like this. Sure. Um, I will say this, that what the medical community considers an adequate level of iron or iron overload may not be entirely congruent with what the most recent literature would suggest. Okay. You know, one, one um, reference or, or person I would refer this, this listener to would be Chris Kresser. Yep. I think Chris Kresser right now is probably the guy on the cutting edge of understanding um, the role of iron in cardiovascular disease. Now, it's not clear to me that the iron overload necessarily relates to the paroxysmal AFib. These may be two unrelated issues, um, but, but nevertheless... Um, I've certainly learned a lot about um, iron levels and their implications from Chris, and I, and I wonder if, uh, if this listener may find some value in doing that. Um, and the other thing I would always ask you know, a person to consider is don't necessarily assume that um, every sort of symptom you're experiencing is related. As I said, some of these things can be completely true, true, and unrelated. Paroxysmal AFib has a very lengthy differential diagnosis, and there can be many things that are, um, you know, not necessarily being looked at at the moment by her and her physicians that could account for that. Right. And Marianne, um, Chris Kresser actually gave a great talk at the Ancestral Health Symposium in Boston earlier this year. They're just now starting to get those videos up online. So definitely go check those out and uh, watch Chris Kresser's talk where he took on this whole idea of iron overload and what it means and what you can do about it. I, I, I myself, Peter, actually have high iron in my blood. And since earlier this year when I found out about that, I've been given blood about every 58 days, which is how often you're allowed to do it. Uh, I've cut down on the amount of red meat, just little things like that. And uh, the iron has come way down. So uh, it really doesn't take a whole lot to, to make that number move. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the next question. It comes from Tina. She says, I am 42 years old and I've been overweight since having children in my early 20s. I'm five foot four, weigh 199 pounds. My A1C was 5.8 when I checked it a few months ago. My doctor advised me that I'm now at risk for type 2 diabetes and that I need to immediately start exercising for 30 minutes per day. I have been playing around with low-carb paleo and primal diets for the past few months, but I can't decide which way to go. I've read tons of information. I listen to many health podcasts like the ones from Jimmy Moore, Balanced Bites, and Fat-Burning Man. So where do I start? I crave sweets at least once a day, and that continues to be my biggest downfall. How do I pick the diet that's best for me? 
Well, you know, I suspect that the, the comments and questions of this listener are very common to a lot of people. Certainly, though, though perhaps not on the show at the moment, uh, certainly broadly across uh, the United States where um, some 8% of the U.S. population, about 30 million people, are suffering currently from type 2 diabetes. And yep. if you include those who are undiagnosed or in the pre-diabetic state, that number is significantly larger. So this is unquestionably the largest health crisis in the United States today. Now, conventional wisdom has long told us that the way to treat diabetes is to eat less fat and exercise more. Right. Um, and as you know, many people who have, to, who have type 2 diabetes are also overweight, um, though not always. There are many overweight people who do not have type 2 diabetes. There are several lean people who do have type 2 diabetes. And in fact, there's some evidence to suggest that lean people with type 2 diabetes have a more virulent, uh, so to speak, um, disease. Wow. So, um, so notwithstanding the fact that those Venn diagrams don't overlap, um, let's come at it from the standpoint of the quote-unquote typical type 2 diabetic or pre-diabetic, which is someone who is probably overweight or slightly uh, overweight or even obese, um, and who by definition has insulin resistance. And so let's ask the question, what does the literature tell us? Well, um, let's see where to start here. That's a pretty big question. Um, first thing I would point out is we've got to understand what's causing the disease. What is type 2 diabetes? It's worth taking a moment to do that, right? So we get this thing called type 1 diabetes, juvenile diabetes, and that's, that's an entirely different disease, so we should never confuse the two. Um, and that's less than 10% of quote-unquote diabetics in the United States have type 1 diabetes, which, as its other name suggests, juvenile diabetes is a disease of onset, typically uh, during, during the first half of your life, if not the first quarter of your life. And that's largely an autoimmune-regulated disease where the immune system destroys the cells in the pancreas called the beta cells that make insulin. Uh, this is a life-threatening illness, and until the 1920s when Banting and Best uh, were able to discover and purify and synthesize insulin. Uh, this was a uniformly fatal disease. Now, type 2 diabetes really didn't exist much back then. Um, and today it's an epidemic and nobody really um, talks about anything else. But it's interesting that the problem starts out as the opposite of type 1. You see, the type 1 diabetic can't make any insulin. The type 2 diabetic actually generates resistance to the effects of insulin, and as a result, creates a hyperinsulinemic environment, which exacerbates the problem. So what does all that mean? So what do we have insulin for? So insulin is a hormone that allows our cells to take up glucose. It does a few other things as well, but for the purpose of this discussion, we'll talk about that. So glucose gets into your bloodstream, and it's got to make its way into a cell. Well, it can't just go freely through the membrane of a cell. It has to go through a transporter, a channel, a bridge. And what tells that bridge to go into the cell, because that bridge doesn't sit there constitutively in the membrane, it only comes up when it's told to come up, is the insulin signal. So the insulin uh, peptide binds to a receptor on a cell, and it generates a signal inside the cell that says, can you get that GLUT4 transporter up to the cell? The GLUT4 transporter is the name of that transporter that allows glucose to enter the cell. And in someone who doesn't have insulin resistance and doesn't, doesn't have any metabolic derangement, that works perfectly. Um, 
However, for reasons we don't entirely understand, by the way, in some individuals, perhaps it's due to constitutively high amounts of insulin circulating, perhaps it's due to consistently elevated glucose levels, perhaps it's due to changes in the membrane composition of their cells, something in that cell signaling cycle gets broken down. And they don't get, the insulin signal doesn't generate the appropriate response to get the GLUT4 transporter in the cell membrane to generate glucose intracellularly. So what happens? Well, when you pull a lever and you don't get what you want, you pull it harder, right? So the pancreas secretes more insulin. And finally, with enough insulin, it gets the desired response, and glucose finally makes its way into the cell. So the earliest stages of diabetes are typically manifested with elevated levels of insulin in the presence of normal levels of glucose, and perhaps even normal weight and normal other risk factors. Mm-hmm. Now, there are other things that will tell us that diabetes is on the way. Um, your triglyceride level, your HDL level, the ratio of those are highly correlated with insulin resistance. Um, Robert Lustig, who's certainly one of the experts in fructose metabolism, um, showed in his series of patients and his cohort of patients that in children at least, um, a ratio of triglyceride to HDL above 2.2 in Caucasians and I believe 1.8 in African Americans was highly correlated with insulin resistance as clinically measured by more advanced testing. So there are certainly other markers out there. But it begs the question that really we're coming back to here, which is what do you do about that? Well, the conventional wisdom, as I said, has been exercise more and reduce fat in your diet. And the reason that I believe that um, has been prescribed is because diabetics are shown to have higher levels of free fatty acids in their bloodstream. And if they're overweight, we logically assume that the problem is they're not exercising enough. And the reason they have so much fat in their bloodstream is because they're consuming so much fat. The largest ever NIH-funded trial aimed at addressing this problem was called the Look Ahead Trial. $200 million were spent, and by just a matter of coincidence, two weeks ago, that trial was halted after, I believe, eight years. Wow. This trial took two groups of individuals with diabetes and randomized them. The first group was the no-intervention group, so this group was just told to continue doing what they were doing, no need to exercise, no need to change your diet. The second group was put on a uh, low-fat diet um, with uh, exercise uh, to induce weight loss. And what was most interesting about this study, and has me still scratching my head a little bit, um, and until the study is published, which it has not been published yet, I can't really uh, do anything other than speculate, but what was reported was that the patients, in fact, did lose weight in the treatment group, but their rate of mortality was no different, meaning even though they exercised more and they were able to cut more fat out of their diet and even lost more weight, they still ended up dying at just the same rate as the group that did nothing, Hmm. which at the very least suggests that that approach at the population level didn't work. Now, my speculation would be that the people who did that didn't actually cure their insulin resistance. So even though they lost weight, they still remained insulin resistant, and they probably had similar levels of insulin resistance to the controls And perhaps that accounted for the equal mortality rate. And so finally getting to the question, and I apologize it's taken a long time, but this is such an important topic and it's so misunderstood. The most logical approach, in my opinion, to curing insulin resistance is reducing insulin levels. 
the most logical way to reduce insulin levels is to reduce the foods that constantly lead to an elevation of insulin. Now, there are a number of fantastic clinical trials out there, much smaller than the look-ahead trial, and they never, you know, the look-ahead trial is the only trial that was really looking at hard outcomes such as death, but at least in the short term suggest that all biomarkers and clinical signs of diabetes could be ameliorated with the reduction of agents that are, or food to be specific, uh, food agents that are predisposing us to elevated levels of insulin. And so perhaps the greatest of these would be uh, studies that have actually come out of the UAE and Kuwait by DASHTI. Um, unfortunately uh, for the UAE, um, levels of obesity and diabetes there are even higher than that in the United States, and it makes it uh, a wonderful place to study these interventions. And so the work of DASHTI doing uh, several um, prospective uh, randomized clinical trials has shown that in periods of time as little as three to six months, um, even the most brittle diabetics can have their um, biomarkers and symptoms improve with the removal of carbohydrates from their diet. Yep. Similarly, um, Eric Westman, Will Yancey, Jeff Bullock, Steve Finney, Richard Feynman, and others have done similar studies in the United States that have shown the same results. So while those studies don't definitively tell us that on a long-term survival basis, this intervention um, is, is the right one to cure diabetes, it certainly suggested that it's worth a try. Right. And the final point I'd make here is, because I can tell that this listener is obviously a little overwhelmed by the number of things out there, I would say start simple and pick something that you can do. Now, in particular, she made a comment about her sweet tooth, and I can certainly relate to that. Oh, yeah. I had a real sweet tooth when I was a chubby guy. Interestingly, I didn't satisfy it with Snickers bars and M&Ms, though I intermittently did have those things. For me, it was about eight to ten servings of fruit every day was how I got my fix. And, of course, eating those eight to ten servings of fruit a day in and of itself may or may not have been harmful, but it certainly made it more difficult for me to turn down desserts and cakes and M&Ms and Snickers bars. What I found really interesting was when I dramatically reduced my intake of all things sweet, including non-caloric sweeteners, such as aspartame and things like that, uh, not necessarily to zero, but to very low amounts, over a period of time, my cravings for sweets vanished to the point where I am now, which is um, I basically don't crave sweets at all. You yeah. can put a cake in front of me, even when I'm hungry, and it just doesn't seem that appealing. I yep. crave salt. I crave other things, but I don't crave sweets. And that probably suggests or at least speaks to another um, sort of emerging piece of literature and research out there that talks about the addictive nature of sweet foods. Uh, addictive much in the same way that heroin or cocaine or alcohol or gambling or other things are addictive, meaning neurochemically addictive substances. Um, and unfortunately, it requires a little bit of a detox. Um, and so one intervention that this, this person may consider is not tweaking the amount of carbohydrates or starches or anything out of the gate, but just removing sucrose, high fructose corn syrup, and all the other things that masquerade around as sugar. And that's, that's not an easy lift. That's, that's going to be a challenge. It's a challenge right. for anybody, especially someone with a sweet tooth. But if you did that without even trying to worry about bread and pasta and other things like that, um, you'd be surprised how much of a difference that could make. It's important to point out, of course, that when you make an intervention like that, you've got to be really, really vigilant and really on the lookout for 
the places where sugar likes to sneak in. So, you know, if you're going to eat bread, it means you've got to be able to find bread that doesn't have sugar in it, or you've got to make your own bread. If you're going to eat pasta, it means you've got to make your own sauce, because anything that comes in a jar is pretty much laced with high fructose corn syrup. But um, starting with a relatively small change, um, sticking with it regardless of how difficult it seems for a period of time, like I said, maybe six weeks, and then looking at tangible metrics. In this person's case, if this person were my patient, I would start by looking at their glucose, insulin, oral glucose challenge, um, triglycerides, basic chemistry, nothing terribly fancy. And I would be curious as to how do those things change over a six-week peri- six, six period following that intervention. Yeah. And then I'd go from there. Yeah, uh, Peter, I, I think it's interesting with the whole nutritional ketosis experiment that I've been doing. Um, I found that I was still having cravings until, for me, I don't know if it extrapolates to other people, but for me, once I got over 2.0 millimolar on the blood ketone meter, I no longer had any of those cravings at all. And literally, like you, you could put a chocolate cake in front of me and it would not faze me even if I was starving hungry. Yep. It's amazing. But it looks like uh, Tina is at least exploring options, and hopefully you've given her some good stuff to think about. Definitely don't give up, girl. Uh, Keep working at it. It is so worth it, and uh, you will find that diet that's right for you. The August 2017 special at KetoLiving.com is buy one, get one free off of the Omega-1250 pharmaceutical grade. It's one of our brand new products at the Keto Living line, and we're really excited to give you this opportunity to get a second bottle for free. Keto Living is a full line of ketogenic-friendly products that will enhance your low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic lifestyle. We have the Keto Essentials multivitamin. We also have a blood sugar lowering vitamin called berberine plus and so much more so check it all out you guys at ketoliving.com let's move on to the next question it comes from paleo zeta from australia and this person says i would like dr atia uh, to expand upon intermittent fasting and talk about uh well diarrhea sorry about that About 10 minutes after I eat again after an intermittent fast, which works very well for me in conjunction with my ketogenic diet, I tend to have one or two bouts of diarrhea. I was reading that it could be our body expelling the toxins in it, but I'm not so sure about that. I've heard other people who do IF having this same issue. Do you have any insights about this? Hmm, interesting question. Um... I won't even pretend to know the answer uh, because I don't, um, but I would only ask the question, um, has this listener experimented with different meals during the refeeding phase of IF, intermittent fasting? Hmm. Um, uh, as some folks know, I've, I've written about this on my blog, for the past six months, I've been doing something that I call IFIC, I-F-I-K, intermittent fasting, intermittent ketosis, which means... Um, I am constantly in a state of intermittently fasting, and I still consume a very low-carbohydrate, nearly ketogenic diet. But the reason my ketosis is intermittent is because when you consume, you know, 3,000 calories in one sitting, um, 
you are invariably going to knock yourself out of ketosis unless all of those calories are fat, which obviously is not the case because I'm still going to consume my day's amount of protein and even a small amount of carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. Um, so the question I would ask is how dependent is this phenomenon based on the type of meal? Um, you know, I notice that different foods I eat dramatically change my bowel habits. Uh, I know nobody wants to hear about that, but since the question question was asked, um, and whether it be supplements such as medium-chain triglyceride oils or fats that do contain a high amount of short-chain and medium-chain saturated fats uh, and or foods that happen to be particularly high in fiber. I've noticed, for example, I'm much more sensitive to fiber today than I was before. Back when I was on a standard American diet, I could tolerate an almost infinite amount of fiber without any, uh, you know, sort of um, changes or dramatic changes in bowel habits, whereas that's not necessarily true today. Um, there's really no doubt that my gut biota are entirely different today than they were six months ago, three years ago, ten years ago. Um, and so, the, you know, to me, when someone talks about having diarrhea ten minutes after a meal, that really has very little to do with the food that they ate getting into their colon and probably has much more to do with an autocrine or paracrine response to the food and something going on in the gut. So while I don't know the answer, um, my advice for starting to elucidate the what, the how, the why would be to do some of those experiments. Of course, if you're really interested in trying to gather more information um, and you have a doctor who's really willing to participate by your side, Obviously, looking at a fecal fat test would be a really interesting thing to do. Yep. I'd want to understand if that person is just expelling a tremendous amount of stool as a result of, um, you know, uh, basically trying to, you know, get rid of it due to an osmotic issue or another issue. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, uh, Peter, I'm, I'm getting a lot of people asking me questions about my stool uh, being as I'm eating an 85% fat diet right now. Uh, people just automatically assume you eat that much fat, it's all going to come out the other end fatty. And no, I mean, my bowel movements are perfectly normal, perfectly clean looking. Sorry again, (laughs) didn't mean to bring that up. uh, It's just amazing. People just assume that if you eat a lot of fat, it's going to come out that way on the other end. Yeah, and I I really think that the, the, you know, the, the gut biome plays just such an enormous role in what's going on there. And, I, you know, if you want to talk about what the next frontier is and our understanding of this, it's really about how we eat impacts our guts. I yep. mean, you know, for people who don't spend a lot of time thinking about this problem, it's important to put this in perspective. Yep. The bacteria in our body, out, so the cells, the bacterial cells and DNA in our body outnumber our own 10 to 1. So think about that for a minute. I'm walking around with X amount of DNA that makes up my body, the bacteria I'm carrying around, the majority of them, which are in my GI tract, my gastrointestinal tract, outnumber that by 10 to 1. Who's the the parasite, right? I must be the parasite off them. Um, And so, you know, we've got to get a better handle on exactly what that relationship looks like um, because it has a lot to do with what we absorb and don't absorb, what we convert and don't convert, perhaps what we crave and don't crave. Um, it's a very exciting area of research. And really, you know, I've been fortunate to um, get to spend a lot of time with one of the guys who's on the forefront of understanding this, Larry Smarr um, at UCSD. Um, 
and and uh, a lot of the stuff I've learned from Larry. And there are, of course, other really great scientists out there who are on the forefront of this. Uh, Jeff Gordon at Wash U, Peter Turnbaugh at Harvard. So, um, you know, I, I'm really excited as I learn more and more about the work these guys are doing. Yeah. Yeah, somebody that's kind of an up-and-coming name, you're probably very familiar with him, Peter, uh, is Lucas Taffer, who's really looking to this as well. Um, he's been on the Living La Vida Low Carb Show, but he's got a, a great blog, lucastaffer.com, L-U-C-A-S-T-A-F-U-R.com. I love his byline. We are 90% microbes and 10% human, <laughs> which kind of goes right in line with what you were just saying. Well, let's go to the next question. It comes from Jan. Jan says, I'm a perimenopausal woman. I eat a low-carb, high-fat version of Primal. My doctor is pushing statins on me strictly on the basis of my LDLC, which registered in at 142 using the Friedwald equation. My HDL is 79. My triglycerides are 71. Because of my insurer and financial situation, getting an NMR lipo profile test to measure my LDLP is out of my reach to better assess my risk factors. I can't even get them to do a C-reactive protein test to assess whether there's inflammation. Is there any dietary tweak I can make to bring LDLC lower without negatively impacting my excellent HDL and triglyceride readings? Yeah, boy, it's a tough question. So, um, and again, a lot of questions embedded there, right? Yep. So the first question is, are we, you know, putting the cart before the horse? Is the question, because the real question isn't, what do I need to do to lower my LDLC? The real question is, am I at risk for heart disease, right? And mm-hmm. should I be taking statins as a result of that? Right. And if so, is there a dietary intervention that I can take to change that? Um, I think... Um, if the question were just, how can I make my lab panel look better? By all means, we know that lowering, you know, for most people, lowering fat intake will lower LDL cholesterol level. Right. We also know that it will almost assuredly lower HDL cholesterol level. Yep. And if you are substituting in isocalorically carbohydrates, it will probably raise your triglyceride level. Mm-hmm. Now, all of those things may make your doctor very happy. If you showed up with an LDLC of 100, and an HDLC of 50 and a trig of 100, most physicians would consider that wonderfully acceptable. The question is, have you improved your risk of disease, even if you've made your doctor happy? And unfortunately, it's actually hard to know the answer to that question without a little bit more advanced testing. Yep. And she suggested a great test of CRP, but even CRP has tremendous limitation. It's highly temporally dependent on what time of day you do it. I did an experiment once where I had nine blood draws in three days, looking at my lipoproteins, my cholesterol level, my LPPLA2, my CRP, everything you could think of. And I was amazed to see the variability during the course of the day and from one day to the next. Now, granted, my CRP always was between 0.3 and 0.8, but nevertheless, that's pretty significant variability for something that we want to hang our hat on. So, you know, if someone showed up with reproducibly CRPs above two, you, you might be concerned. Um, so I don't really know how to answer this question, Jimmy, because um, I completely understand the limitations of uh, her insurance carrier. Um, and uh, well, the good thing is nowadays, boy, I'd really like I'd really like to see some advanced testing. It, it's really hard for me to, to to really address this person's risk and whether or not a statin is the right choice. Right. Um, I certainly believe that statins are like hammers, which means um, you know. 
They're to be used when there's a nail. Um, but hammers are not the right tool when, uh, when you're looking at the Phillips head of a screw. Right. And they're not the right tool when the window's dirty and needs to be cleaned. So, so you know, I'm, I'm obviously very critical of the overuse of statins, but I also don't believe the pendulum should swing the other way. I, I, I also don't agree that, you know, statins should be wiped off the face of the earth. Right. Um, I think they're highly, highly overprescribed, but the challenge and the reason that I've become so interested in lipidology is to get a better understanding of who are the patients that really do benefit from this therapy um, and who are the patients who don't. And it's sort of like antibiotics. I mean, there's, it'd be very hard to make a case that our world's not better today because of penicillin, um, but it'd also be hard to make a case that we're not overusing them so and creating resistant bacteria that are leading to more problems. So um, as much as I'd love to be able to offer more, it's hard for me to do so in the absence of, uh, of more data. Sure. And for Jan, I mean, I run my own tests online, and that's the beauty of living in 2012 world is you can go online. I use an outfit called privatemdlabs.com. They're not affiliated or a sponsor or anything. I just love their service. And I got both an NMR lipo profile test with IR markers plus an APOB test, and both of those out-of-pocket. I don't have health insurance, so out-of-pocket were less than $150. Uh, now, that may be a lot of money to Jan, but uh, certainly there are ways to get those tests run if your doctor or your insurance company uh, won't pay for them. So. That's a great point, Jimmy. And speaking of my test results, Eric had a question that he wanted you to address about those results that I had uh, with my NMR and APOB. It seems very timely that Dr. Atia would be on your podcast, Jimmy, as your latest APOB results showing 238 and an LDLP score of 3451 would appear to be quite alarming based on his recent straight dope on cholesterol series. Since Dr. Atia is a huge fan of ketogenic diets and has a lot of knowledge about the importance of lipid markers, I would imagine he would be in a fantastic position to help clarify what the heck's going on with you? He seems to believe that the APOB number is one of the most important markers of cardiovascular health. And by the way, what is Dr. Atia's APOB number? So, a lot of things there. So, Jimmy, just to be completely honest with you, I'd love to have that discussion, but yep. we could not really do it in this forum because sure. there is a fine line between providing sort of general advice and providing medical advice. Right. And though I am a licensed physician, I cannot provide medical advice to people uh, through blogs and, you know, that sort of thing. So unless right. somebody is under my care directly, I, I can't actually provide medical advice. So let's try to address this question a little bit more broadly. Okay. Um, as this reader uh, or uh, listener commented, I have written a, a series on my blog called The Straight Dope on Cholesterol. It's got nine parts in it, and the tenth part is still in my head, um, and hopefully will be out before Christmas. But the problem is I need about ten hours to <laughs> write it, and I don't, don't seem to have ten free hours anymore. Right. Um, but I will say this. The tenth part of that series will actually address this exact question. Okay. The question being, why is it that some people who go on a diet that dramatically cleans up all of their other risk markers, so yep. to be clear, their glucose levels go down, insulin levels go down, hemoglobin A1C goes down, CRP goes down, LP, PLA2 goes down, MPO goes down, H HDLC goes up, 
trigs go down, but ApoB and LDLP go up. Yep. And let's be honest, we're not seeing this at a trivial amount. Um, it's a couple things we don't know. First off, we don't know the denominator. So I don't understand if this is happening to 1% of the population or if it's happening to 10% of the population or if it's happening to 20% of the population. We don't know. So there's a huge selection bias, right? Anybody who experiences this, we get to hear about, but we don't hear about all the people whose cholesterol numbers, like mine, and I'll share mine in a moment, improve in the presence of a dietary intervention that uh, tends to increase fat or decrease carbs. Second thing we don't know is the time series data. Now, there's a lot of interesting work being done about how transient these responses may or may not be. So we don't know if the increase in LDL particles is the result of some transient phenomenon that is mobilizing um, and temporarily changing the movement of cholesterol within the body. Again, we don't know that. Um, and unfortunately, in many people's cases, we don't actually even have pre-existing data. So for most people, including myself, their first NMRs are usually after they've made a dietary intervention. So with all that said, um, there is no doubt, Jimmy, that an LDLP above 3,000 puts, that puts you um, in the 99.5, 99.9th percentile, meaning you have a higher LDLP than 995 or 99.9% .9 of the population. Right. There's also very little doubt based on the published and existing data out there that that places you at a higher risk of heart disease than the average person relative to the population that you're being compared to. So all that sounds pretty bad. But there's one thing we don't know, and that is the following. Everything we know about LDLP and ApoB, including everything I've written about on my blog, is all in the context of a standard American diet. Yep. And as people know who have read my series, I talk about there being these you know, huge forces at play here. One of them is the number of particles that you have in your bloodstream. And the more particles you have in your blood, just based on a stochastic process, the more likely a particle is to end up in the subendothelial space of an artery wall. But we also have the issue of endothelial permeability, right? And we also have this issue of particle retention. So there's technically no one thing that leads to atherosclerosis. If, for example, you had an individual who had a very high particle number, but whose endothelial cells were not permeable or as permeable to the particles, and or someone who had a high particle number but who did not have an inflammatory response to those particles when those particles and their sterile cargo made their way into the subendothelial space, would they get atherosclerosis? No. So what we don't know, but desperately need to know, and you know, one of the few things I do spend my spare time on is interacting with the folks who do this kind of testing um, in a, in, a, in a sort of manner to help design the right kind of clinical trials to assess this is how do we interpret body markers, sterile markers, in the presence of a diet that is radically different from the one in which the population data were generated? <laughs> so all of that's really interesting in, an, in a sort of intellectual way, but it doesn't actually speak to 
the question that matters most to the listener or to you, which is, well, okay, but what do I do, right? I mean, I don't want to wait five years for data. If I'm at risk, I want to do something about it now. Well, this is where I don't know what to say because it's a very personal decision. The best thing I would offer someone is to look at all of the other markers of risk. Right. If the LDLP level has gone up in the presence of a high-fat diet, and so too have all of the best surrogates we have of inflammation, LPPLA2, myeloperoxidase, C-reactive protein, fibrinogen, all of the new things that suggest an inflammatory state is, is, is at hand, it would be very hard for me to say continue on that diet. Um, other factors that may play into this are APOE status. So apolipoprotein E genotype uh, matters a lot. And I don't want to kind of get into too many technical things, but for people who have read the post, they're probably familiar with, with, with some of these ideas. So the wild type for APOE is the 3-3, two copies of the 3 allele. People that have one or two copies of the 4 allele, so they're APOE 3-4s or APOE 4-4s or APOE 2-4s, um, may carry a higher risk. Certainly the 3-4s and the 4-4s do. It's not clear about the 2-4s. Um, in that that gene codes for a less functional LDL receptor on the liver. I consider that like a slippery baseball glove. And if the LDL receptor on the liver is like a baseball glove that's supposed to be catching LDL particles in the liver, bringing them back inside, and that glove's kind of slippery, you're going to have a harder time clearing your particles. So unfortunately, all of this is a long-winded way of saying you got to do a little bit more testing. Yep. You got to start to ask these sort of second-order questions. Um, and then you've got to make a personal decision based on your own risk appetite, your perception of what you think is or isn't the right thing to do. Um, and, you know, I think that's just the best we can do, unfortunately, until we have more compelling data that give us the answer. Now, in response to the question about my LDL numbers, um, my LDLP numbers, and I mentioned earlier on the show, um, I've done a lot of testing on this. I've, in fact, done, like as I mentioned, nine blood draws in um, three days. Um, and so overall, I've probably had 15 or 20 uh, APOB and LDL levels drawn over the past year. Um, my numbers have been, and believe it or not, as low as 450 wow. and as high as 1,600. Hmm. That's pretty amazing. With, you know, some change in eating, but not a heck of a lot. The average number for me is probably about 11 to 1,200, right. um, but it also suggests that there may be some variability on the time of day, whether, I'm, um, whether I've exercised or not. I, the whole reason I did that experiment in the first place was I noticed that I had a big change in LDLP number before and after exercise, um, just as I had a change in some of my inflammatory markers before and after exercise. So again, it probably suggests that more than one measurement is necessary before you make an intervention, um, and that Again, it becomes a pretty nuanced and personal decision. I do plan to address this topic in the 10th part of that cholesterol series, and, and hopefully uh, that'll provide a little bit of guidance for folks to think about this. So, Peter, was there a correlation with the time of day with that 400 reading compared with the time of day for the 1,200 to 1,600 reading? The 400 actually was not during that three-day experiment. Uh -huh. um, it was probably several months before. I think during that three-day experiment, I, I don't want to speak uh, inaccurately, but I think the right. variability during that experiment was somewhere between 1,000 and 1,400. Gotcha. Um, and 
based on a relatively small data set, I, I was not able to really identify a pattern. So I, I can't actually draw a conclusion as to why was it 1,000 at one, one of those draws and why was it 1,400 at another. Sure. Uh, by the way, my I have noticed, by the way, that I am discordant. So on a percentile basis, my LDLP is consistently higher than my LDLC. So I think the last time I had my numbers checked, my LDLP number was at about the 40th percentile of the population, whereas my LDLC number was at about the 20th percentile. Hmm. Interesting. So, uh, by the way, my uh, APOE genotype is 3-3. Three, three. Uh, a lot of people assume with my high LDLP that it, I have a 4 in there somewhere, but no 4, 3-3. Three, three. <laughs> All right, so... You know, the, thing, the other thing you may want to, um, folks may want to look at, and I think only HDL Labs does this, and I use HDL Labs for all of mine, um, is I also use the sterol panel, which actually measures both the de novo synthesis and absorption of cholesterol in my body. So it allows me to understand where the cholesterol in those LDL particles is coming from. Is it cholesterol that's being reabsorbed from my biliary tree, or is it cholesterol that's being synthesized de novo in the cells of my body? Interesting. Thank you. That's good. Is there a website for them, do you know? Uh, yeah, Health Diagnostic Laboratory should, should find it. Awesome. We'll put a link to the uh, show notes with that. But Jack has the next question. Since cycling is a topic that is very rarely addressed in paleo low-carb circles, does Peter have any tips for maximizing endurance athletic performance while on a ketogenic diet? Whenever I try to do cycling while in ketosis, I often feel fatigued and lose some of my power. Alternately, if I eat a lot of carbs and sugar-laden cycling food, I get stomach aches and feel bloated and grouchy most of the ride. Peter's blog has been the only thing I've ever seen uh, talking about this topic, and I'd appreciate hearing more from him about this. Now, I, I would only interject to begin uh, that he needs to look up the work of Dr. Steve Finney, who has done a lot of great work uh, with cyclists and ketogenic diets. That's right. Steve Finney did a study in 1983 when he was, a, I believe, a postdoc at MIT um, that actually um, looked at a group of really, really highly trained cyclists pre- and post-aketogenic diet, um, and, and the reader can see that there. Now, um, the other thing is there's, I've seen a lot of unpublished work by Veach and Clark using ketone esters that has largely replicated that work. So whether the ketosis was caused from a nutritional state or um, a synthetic state, the results seem to be pretty clear that a well-formulated ketogenic diet um, significantly improves uh, substrate utilization and even performance at the, in the aerobic sub-threshold zone and generally does not appear to improve supra-threshold or above-threshold performance. Uh, and again, the reason here is ketones directly enter the Krebs cycle outside of the pyruvate dehydrogenase pathway, so they become a substrate to the electron transport chain outside of the typical way that either fatty acids or glucose enter, so they bypass it. Um, but they don't have any bearing on glycolytic issues. So, you know, when folks talk to me about their performance suffering on low-carb diets, the first thing I usually, you know, ask them is just some of the standard questions about the supplementation because, uh, uh, you know, the key to a low-carb diet, especially from an athletic performance standpoint, is the formulation of it. And so if any of the electrolytes 
uh, fluids are out of balance, it can, it's very easy to sort of um, do more harm than good. And so the typical agents that most people, um, I think at the outset, including myself, tend to miss are the importance of sodium and magnesium supplementation, um, and perhaps even uh, calcitrol, and maybe even potassium if cramping is an issue. Though typically, um, high doses of, uh, or, you know, mo modest to high doses of magnesium and sodium tend to prevent any potassium wasting. Mm-hmm. And Jack, I would recommend very highly you get a copy of uh, Steve Finney and Jeff Folick's book, The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Performance, where they get into a lot of the science behind ketogenic diets uh, from an athletic performance perspective. All right, so let's go to the next question for you, Peter. It's uh, from Roger, and Roger says, does a ketogenic diet repair or re-regulate an underactive thyroid? I've been on this diet for about a year and a half now, but my hypothyroid symptoms still exist, although I feel much better. My latest blood test suggests that I have low T3. I'm athletically built, never been overweight, and exercise moderately. I'm wondering if Dr. Atia is a proponent of doing any thyroid supplementation in conjunction with a ketogenic diet as a beneficial approach to treating these hypothyroid symptoms. So, Jimmy, unfortunately, and it's probably on my end, I almost heard none of that. I heard okay. the odd words. So, sure. uh, rather than make you repeat it, was the question effectively, um, thyroid labs are off and I'm on a ketogenic diet? Correct. Yes. Are you able to hear me okay, by the way? I hear you loud and clear. Yes. Okay. So, I, for, unfortunately, I can't really hear you at the moment. Sorry. But, um, so... Uh, tough question and, and one that seems to be um, probably, uh, again, one of these questions where we don't know the denominator, but undoubtedly there are some people that are coming forward saying, look, my thyroid numbers are um, off in, the, in, in, this, in this diet. What does that mean? And the first question I always ask is, let's be clear and we define what are thyroid numbers being off. So, you know, there are a number of different thyroid tests we, we look at. We look at TSH, which is a hormone secreted by the brain that actually tells the thyroid to make its thyroid hormone. We look at T4 and T3, the active and inactive compounds, and we look at even RT3 as well. So the first thing I would do is just make sure you've got a comprehensive look at those thyroid numbers. The second question I always ask is the symptom question, because again, just like we have what's considered normal and abnormal laboratory levels um, of, you know, cholesterol and whatnot, um, everything that's considered normal or abnormal in the thyroid environment is based on a standard American diet. And so um, while I think most people who go on a low-carbohydrate or carbohydrate-sparing diet um, or carbohydrate-reduced diet uh, do not have a clinically significant change in their thyroid numbers, some do, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there's an abnormality there. Um, in fact, um, a number of folks, including Mark Hellerstein at Berkeley, have looked at how changes in macronutrient intake impact thyroid levels, and one of the conclusions drawn from that work is that the, the changes in thyroid level may, in fact, impact a change in the body in response to a need or a lesser need for, you know, endogenous and exogenous sources of energy. In other words, it might be the case that 
if someone's not having any symptoms, meaning they don't have the symptoms of hypothyroidism, they're not fatigued, they don't have the, you know, the, the cold intolerance and all those things that typically track with what we call clinically significant hypothyroidism, but they just have a number that's off and yet they feel fine, it may actually suggest that that's a normal response to something else that's going on in the body. So um, I think my advice to this, to this person would be to, you know, ensure that they've got a, you know, a complete look at the picture and that they're not um, misdiagnosing something from a laboratory standpoint, but more importantly, to ask the question, what are the clinical manifestations I'm experiencing? Because it's not actually clear to me that someone who has a high TSH and a low T4, for example, who otherwise feels perfectly fine, needs thyroid replacement medication. Right. So let's move on to the next uh, questions. Can you still hear me okay? Hear me about every other word. <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, hopefully we'll, we'll be done here very quickly. Uh, the next two questions both have to do with vegetables. Michelle says, I heard you mention on your previous podcast with Jimmy that you use vegetables as a vehicle for consuming more fat. How important are vegetables in the diet if you're eating a high-fat, low-carb diet? I always get confused because you hear how important it is to eat a lot of vegetables, but I'm not particularly fond of them when trying to increase my ketones. Tom had a similar question. He said, we often hear the phrase used in the low-carb community that there is no dietary requirement for carbohydrate. I've always assumed this comment was directed at the usual suspects like bread, cereal, pasta, legumes, etc. But I have to ask, are vegetables really necessary to consume? In my case, I'm referring to non-starchy vegetables like kale, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, and so forth. Vegetables contain lots of vitamins, nutrients, fiber, and phytochemicals, but I've read that cruciferous vegetables are potentially goitrogenic. Cooking these vegetables for long periods of time helps mitigate the deleterious effects, but the suggested cooking time is 30 minutes. So can you give us the scoop on vegetables? Well, really, you know, this, that, that's a question that probably deserves its own podcast. Yeah. Um, so so I, maybe just a couple of points to touch on. So um, I know it's sort of politically correct to argue that vegetables, you know, are an absolutely essential part of our existence and that it's incompatible with human life to not have five to six servings of them a day. Um, but that's probably not true universally. Uh, in fact, we know it's not true universally. There are many populations that evolved without a single gram of vegetable in their diet. Um, you know, the Inuit being the most obvious example. Right. Um, and, and so the, the first thought I would, I would put forth is the following. Um, like everything else we've discussed today, the need for more or less of these agents is highly dependent on the remainder of your dietary uh, sort of program. Um, you know, I got a question on my blog the other day about, you know, vitamin C, and I responded with a story that probably many folks are familiar with, which is, um, you know, how vitamin C came about, how did we come to understand, well, not how vitamin C came about, but how did we come to understand the role of vitamin C in preventing scurvy? And, of course, the, the, the story was that of, uh, you know, British sailors crossing the Atlantic all developing scurvy while they were, you know, eating potatoes and, and bread. Um, and, of course, a physician on board realized that if he gave them high doses of limes, he was able to reverse the scurvy. Um, now, there's a nuance there, which is it may be the case that high amounts of vitamin C were necessary to reverse scurvy, 
Um, it doesn't necessarily mean high amounts of vitamin C were necessary to prevent scurvy. More to the point, though, we now realize that vitamin C, which is, by the way, an essential cofactor for the amino acid proline, which is an essential molecule for the construction of collagen, um, vitamin C competes with the same channel that glucose competes with in the cell. And so it might be the case that in the presence of a standard American diet, higher amounts of vitamin C and or other uh, micronutrients found in fruits and vegetables may be necessary. So it may be necessary to have five or six servings of fruits or vegetables a day in the presence of breads and starches and cereals. Um, it's not clear to me that that's necessary in the absence of those things. Um, but I think the broader point here is, you know, I don't see evidence that eating leafy vegetables, uh, the non-starchy vegetables that this, this person commented on, have any harm. Um, you know, for what it's worth, I consume them, um, and I haven't really noticed any adverse effects of doing so. I don't consume starchy vegetables, and, I don't, and I, I'm pretty limited in my fruit consumption. But um, this may be a little bit of a red herring. Um, even in a state of ketosis, it's quite easy to consume ample amounts of leafy vegetables um, and non-starchy vegetables. Um, and frankly, I think it's kind of a palatable way to mix up, mix up eating. So, you know, um, I think the, the question remains unresolved in my mind from a scientific standpoint because it hasn't been studied adequately. Um, I do reject the sort of conventional dogma that says that you have to have, you know, five to six servings of fruits and vegetables a day to live a healthy life because, quite frankly, it's the same dogma that said you had to have five to six servings of whole grains every day to avoid cancer. And, you know, there's no evidence to support either of those based on rigorous clinical trials. All of the evidence that kind of supports that stems from observational studies. And without getting into it, I think most people understand that such studies, uh, while interesting at generating hypotheses, are limited in actually inferring a direct cause and effect. Right. Now, Peter, um, on the low-carb cruise a couple of years ago, Jackie Eberstein is a registered nurse who worked with Dr. Atkins for three decades in his clinic. And she said some of her patients, and I found this is true about myself, uh, actually saw blood sugar spikes from eating spinach um, and actually had to back off on even the non-starchy vegetables in order to see the kind of health results they were looking for. So again, it's that variability of the individual and how severe their insulin resistance is uh, and various other markers. Yeah, another great example of what I hope is a recurring theme, which is at the end of the day, none of this matters except to you. Right. And so the more dialed in you can be to monitoring how these changes are in terms of the best markers you have to assess your risk, the better. That's right. Well, we have reached the final question of the night. Nobody wanted to ask you any questions live. I guess you're doing such a great job answering the emailed questions. But the last one comes from Darren. He says, over the past uh, year and a half, I've been following a low-carb diet, stopping short of nutritional ketosis. I put my daily carbohydrate input around 100 grams out of a 2,700-calorie diet. It has allowed me to accomplish and exceed the goals that I've set out for myself. He's lower tri- 
triglycerides, decreased A1C, reduced his fasting blood glucose numbers, and shed over 35 pounds off of his body. He wasn't trying to lose weight. It just happened. Uh, during that time, I've been reading as much information as I can about low-carb lifestyles, looking at the best low-carb diet studies. I have seen most are centered on ketogenic diets and clearly show the benefits of that lifestyle, and yet it seems there are still many questions about nutrition that are left unanswered or do not have answers backed by solid science. Should I be concerned about long-term health risks from my diet falling short of a ketogenic level? Will your NUSI project be focusing primarily on a strict ketogenic lifestyle or a variety of diets across the spectrum? And are there any specific tests that I need to run on myself before, during, and after if I wanted to do an N equals one experiment of getting into nutritional ketosis? Well, a lot of questions there. Um, so let me address perhaps the most important. We, we haven't really discussed the Nutrition Science Initiative, um, but that is obviously what I do for a living, and that's, that's really my passion and, frankly, has nothing to do with anything we've spoken about today. Everything we've talked about today has been, you know, Peter Atia giving his own personal views and thoughts on things. But right. um, the Nutrition Science Initiative, which is a nonprofit organization founded this year, um, aims to reduce both the social and economic uh, toll of obesity and obesity-related diseases. And it aims to do so by um, funding the most rigorous experimental science in nutrition that aims to answer uh, everything from the single most fundamental questions that seem unresolved um, to the more long-term questions about safety um, and long-term effectiveness of diets. So. Um, so, no, NUSI will not be focusing on, you know, just the utilization or health of the ketogenic diet. It will be focusing on a much broader topic of what do we need to understand about diet and health to get the United States back to the levels of obesity and diabetes that we enjoyed in the 1960s versus what we enjoy today. Um, so I think, you know, I mean, I, I, there are a lot of questions there, but to me that strikes me as the most important. I guess to, to wrap up, I would say... Um, sounds like this reader or listener rather is doing all the right stuff. I mean, they're, they're going back to the primary literature and as, as this person pointed out, you know, the majority of studies show that a well-formulated adhered to low carbohydrate diet um, is a highly efficacious way for most people to lose weight and reduce metabolic syndrome and therefore reduce their risk of disease. Now there are a number of studies that have shown no difference between diets. Um, in fact, perhaps the most famous study that's used to suggest that low-carbohydrate diets have no greater efficacy than low-fat diets or any other diets would be uh, the Frank Sachs study in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2009. Right. And I would only point out that studies like that may actually be pointing out another limitation um, of all diets, including low-carbohydrate diets, which is compliance. Right. Um, if you look at that study, which followed a cohort of prospectively intervened patients over two years, by the end of that study, there was no difference at all in weight or biomarkers, which to me actually suggests that those patients by the end of that study were all actually eating the same thing. They were. And in particular, I'd point out that their HDLCs were identical across the board at the end of that study, and it's been long documented that HDLC is perhaps the most sensitive biomarker for carbohydrate and fat intake, meaning anytime an isocaloric switch is made from carbohydrate to fat, HDLC rises and vice versa is true as well. So um, it's an important point because it talks about the difficulty that I think um, many people have 
um, adhering to anything that is not the default, right? And that's really at the end of the day perhaps the most important point to keep in mind. Anyone who's listening to this, anybody who cares about this um, is doing so because they've probably come to accept the fact that the default diet is not working for them. Right. The default diet, that that's the type of eating you would do if you turned your brain off and ate when you were hungry and didn't eat when you weren't hungry. It turns out that probably that diet only works for about a third of Americans. And it happens to be that third of Americans who aren't overweight, don't have metabolic syndrome. And but it turns out about two thirds of Americans, it just doesn't seem to be working. But we have a challenge. And the challenge is we live in an environment that's forcing a default upon us. And you can never, ever discount the importance of the default. Um, a lot of sociologic studies have looked at this. I won't go into detail now because we're so short of time, but um, defaults matter. And it takes a lot to overcome them. And obviously the first step is even asking the question. But um, sounds like this person's doing the right thing. And, you know, it's my hope, obviously, and my, my life's ambition that, you know, within 15 years, we don't have to have these discussions because the data will speak for themselves and we don't have to speculate and provide anecdotal evidence. Sure. Yeah, as of the recording of this today, uh, they released the nomination period for the 2015 uh, Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee. Uh, would you ever be interested in serving on that if you were nominated? Um, you know, not really sure, Jimmy. We'd have to have to discuss that. It, it, it probably wouldn't be a great place for me to be. Um, I think I, I see it as my role not to be providing, you know, population-based recommendations, but yeah. uh, I feel like uh, my calling is really to try to get the science sorted out so that I don't have to do what I'm doing tonight. Not that sure. I don't enjoy talking with you, Jimmy, but <laughs> but I, I feel like, uh, you know, we've got to solve this problem from the top down. We've got to right. get the science right. Um, and And then after that, we can sort of hopefully make the recommendations. Yeah, I, I like the whole idea of default diet. That's definitely something that uh, hopefully that committee will take under consideration because uh, it's not going to be the same for everybody um, w what diet's right for them. Hopefully by now at this point in the podcast, you're realizing the diet that's right for you is the one that's only right for you. It may not be right for anybody else. So uh, Dr. Peter Atia, he, again, he is from the eatingacademy.com website. He did mention his new C project, NUSI.org, if you want to check that out. And thanks so much for being here with us. Well, Jimmy, thanks so much for, uh, for giving me a chance to kind of hear the, the questions that, that your listeners have. And uh, uh, hopefully um, something I said was, uh, was able to help someone tonight. I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did. Coming up next time on the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show, we'll have a registered dietitian named Dr. Ashley Lucas talking about the low-carb teachings through the Ph.D. Advanced Nutrition Program. Get show notes for today's episode at theliveinlowcarbshow.com. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review at iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show. We'll see you next time. Disc. <laughs>